was Raw more rotten than Dynamite was disastrous. And joining me in this and so much more, hopefully not, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's the earliest bird that gets the biggest worm. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. A pleasure to have multiple gardeners apparently in the background here with me. It's a buzzing of sounds. I can't Just even tell Just tell, tell the from. truth. Tell the truth. What? Come clean. Tell the truth. You got wiped out in that big stock market fiasco that 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 buggy whip manufacturing company that you invested in, and you have now taken a job with the people that used to be your gardeners, and you travel with them. They, they what are you having cut and trimmed on such a regular basis? Well, no, you were right. I'm now traveling with the gardeners as they drive around. I sit on top of the truck with a bullhorn. And I announce their arrival wherever we go. I'm traveling with the gardeners. I'm, I'm detecting some some bull horning in there. <laughs> um, <it's> not, <laughs> we're on the road together, me and we're, the gardeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish you and me were like Hope and Crosby on the road to somewhere. I don't know where this show is going. We're making good time, folks, but we're hopelessly lost. This program is being recorded a lot earlier than the experience usually is, and just, it feels like literally moments after we finished recording the drive through but that was just, just a touch over 24 hours ago. I feel like we we just hung up, uh, because we have various scheduling conflicts amongst both of the the the, the North and South connection here. You know, this weekend's Thunder over Louisville. And it's going to be a shitty day, apparently. Um, and also, we have uh, editing minions in the Arcadian Vanguard. I wouldn't say minions. Well, I, they're all minions. Let's face it. The only people irreplaceable around here are you or me. Kippelman, we could fucking find somebody down on Skid Row, drag him Stop in. that. That's not true at all. He's a very talented you could, guy. You could shave a donkey's ass and teach him to walk backwards. You'd have another Kippelman. What's but your anyway, problem? He's a, I disagree completely. There's, there's editing. There's editing issues with the staff. There's things going on up there. I think you're you're going to a rebar mitzvah, aren't you, this weekend? Uh, I wish I had a quick answer for that. Uh, yes, well, see, yes, I am. In fact, work on that and come back to me with it later on. We'll stick it in when we get the editors back on schedule. But it is so. Therefore, what what we're doing today is we're. <laughs> We're attacking the immediacy, the immediacy, if you will. We're going to be slappy because we've done literally, what, 10 hours this in the last four days. Uh, we're going to be tackling the immediacy 
of the programming from both AEW and WWE uh, this week on Raw and Dynamite. We've got a couple of people to recognize, a couple of things to talk about. And this is going to be pumped out, much like a impacted septic tank, pump, pumped out to the public as quickly as we can so they might get an early program. But at the very least, we're right on top of these things that have happened. And then if, again, if news breaks, spurts, comes to a head, trickles out, leaks, whatever it does, drips over the next several days until we do the drive through we'll update that on the official YouTube channel, which is almost at 350,000 subscribers from what I'm hearing these days. So that's what we're doing today, right? We're going to jump on all this television nonsense. That is, and again, I apologize. It appears a second uh, round of buzzing has begun behind me somewhere. Are you sure you're not living in a beehive? I got, I got fucking road. this. This fucking woman lives fucking catty corner across the road from me. Has goddamn excavators and earth movers in her side yard again. I don't know what's going on over there, and and it's still not as loud as your environment up there the sound it's the acoustics of the area the sound bounces off the valley and oh the rises acoustics. up yes oh that's that's what well see you live down in the holler then down in the holler what you're saying down in the holler playing the old game no no that no, you don't understand see a lot of people think that down down in the country down in the mountains that 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 the hollows are called hollers because people have a southern accent but no it's actually if you lived on one side of the holler from the other side of the holler you had to holler to your neighbors and you hollered across the holler and they could hear you see don't you see i'm sorry i'm distracted the buzzing is just it's out oh, of control it's out of control I, I don't hear anything. Ladies and gentlemen, can you write in and tell Brian Lass that, that the buzzing is in his head? Are the, is the buzzing telling you to do anything? Is it articulating anything, any instructions for you, any compulsions that it might be giving you? It says, let Brit go. That's what it keeps saying. Let Brit go. Woo, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to bring up one of the highlights. You said we have so many things to stay on top of and talk about. And I thought, like what? Let her go. Let let my let my people go. Well, before we get into all that, uh, and I must, we've got to talk about a, a topic that's actually gotten, you know, hot and popular here. Well, not popular, but hot, uh, dis well discussed. It's a sad topic, but Reggie's corner is becoming <laughs> a thing. A hot topic. A hot topic. That hot topic of animal death. Well, see, now you're just twisting. Well, maybe you're not twisting the whole reason that Reggie's Corner became a thing. But uh, so the point is nobody, nobody wishes to have to be a part of Reggie's Corner. But now that it has become a thing to pay tribute to some people's loyal, trusted, loved companions, they're writing in. And I must admit, I'm behind on emails because of the big sale at Cornette's Collectibles. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'm behind on the emails. If you have sent anything in in the last week or two, I've probably not seen it, but I plan to, over the next few days, have the opportunity to go through some things. But I got an email from my friend Joe Pulley, who's done some cool artwork 
of me. And he, well, he does other people also. He's not just a Jim Cornette tribute artist. The walls of his room at home are not just filled with drawings of me, somewhat like fucking pages out of the Bible in the Omen. He's done all kinds of different art. But in this case, he emailed to let me know that his dad had apparently passed away in 2019. And before he died, he had gotten a cat for Joe's mom, Nancy, to keep her company, right? Which was such a cool thing to do. Uh, but the cat's name was Dakota. And apparently Dakota got sick a while ago and uh, a bunch of veterinarian visits failed. I'm paraphrasing his email, but point is Dakota passed away on April 4th. And Joe thought that it would make Mama Nancy's day just to have Dakota be mentioned as part of Reggie's Corner and become famous on the show. So I wanted to do that for Joe. And uh, obviously we're sorry about Dakota and the whole circumstances around the the issue. But anyway. And right now Swami's barking at the mailman at the door here at Reggie's Corner. By the way, Reggie's Corner, let's be honest about what it is. It's a tribute to our fallen pets. That doesn't mean you should send in emails with suggestions for Reggie Corner, Reggie's Corner, excuse me, just outrageous animal stories of cats sleeping with dogs and all sorts yeah. of, that's not what no, this is. We, is that, is, that's kind of a form of bestiality anyway, isn't it? Interspecial uh, carnal knowledge? We don't want to just take Reggie's Corner into the sewer. It's a whole bunch of... Just crazy stories. They all seem to come from the British press, for whatever that means. Well, and what that, the, the British press was the one that had the thing about the guy that stuck the world record number of Mars bars up his ass. That's right. So we, do, we don't want to know, for heaven's sake. Should there be a restriction on what animals can be included in Reggie's Corner? I mean, if someone says, like, oh, I had a pet giraffe. <laughs> okay, no, no, but giraffes are beautiful animals. And... <laughs> you know, we've we've got to re recognize the the plight of the African and and worldwide wildlife as well. The elephants and the giraffes and the rhinoceroses and the uh, what do you get when you cross an elephant with a rhinoceros? Man, you do this joke so often, I can't never remember what the punchline yeah. is. God well, damn, elephino! There it is. If you'd have come in there, yeah. But see, also, you can't. You can't, you know, discriminate amongst the animal kingdom, but I'll tell you one thing, I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it takes to get on this show. You will be shut out and turned away. So no tarantulas. No, no, no. I will, I, I fie upon them. Oh, interesting. The only good tarantula is a dead tarantula. And no snakes. That goes for any snake also. Wow. Cut their heads off. Well, there's two animals. I asked if there were any animals excluded. There's two. Any other ones you want to throw in here at the well, end? Well, there's more than two if you consider the different interspecies types <laughs> of various spiders and snakes. There could be hundreds or thousands or millions. I'm not a goddamn... Interspecies, yes. Inter well, the various <laughs> subspecies of the species. It's very specious what you're, what you're doing here now. Just trying to group all spiders and snakes together. There are no lovable ones. But at the same time, some are more dangerous than others. But uh, they all fie upon them all, fish heads to them. And and we're and we're not going to we're not also we're not going to get into fish because fish, you you can name them, but they're not affectionate. 
you know, so we're, we're wanting something that's a, co a companion to the human race rather than just happens to be around or is potentially a predator of. I think cats are okay, but I'm against bobcats. So none of those. Well, how do you mountain know? lions? But what a mountain now a mountain lion. A bobcat's not as bad as a mountain lion. Isn't it the same thing? I don't know. I think it is. I think it's just I have, well different just parts depends of the on country. how big it is. You don't think of a little bobcat like a mountain lion. A little bobcat and a mountain lion. Is bobcat an official title? Or is that just a nickname for a mountain lion? Like what's that? Well, oh, that's the, that's know, a bobcat. I'll tell you what. When Bearcat Brown was a hot baby face in the Tennessee territory. I don't know whether this guy was related or not, but along came this little guy named Bobcat Brown, and they said he was his, I think he was either his cousin or maybe his nephew or whatever, and old Bobcat was about 80 pounds lighter than Bearcat, and Bobcat would get his ass kicked, and Bearcat come to the rescue. So Bearcats must be bigger than Bobcats. Well, just for the record, now you got me wondering. The Bobcat, also known as the Red Lynx, is a medium-sized cat native to North America. Uh-huh. So that's the bobcat. Hold on. Bear cat. Is that what this is? Oh, my God. <laughs> I've, I've never seen this fucking thing before in my life. But <laughs> now don't get scared. <laughs> the binarong, also known as the bear cat, is a veverid native to South and Southeast Asia. It is uncommon in much of its range and has been assessed as vulnerable on the red list because of a declining population trend that is estimated at more than 30% since the mid-1980s. So that's the bear cat. But it looks like something you don't want to fuck with. Oh, yeah. No, this thing looks bad. Oh, yeah. No, okay. no, it looks like it can jump on a tree and just claw your eyes out. And what was the other one? Mountain lion. Mountain lion. And that's a cougar. So cougars and mountain lions are the same thing. Walls. And, and a cougar is something you don't want to fuck with. So see there, there you go. So I'm against all these. I'm against all cats that are like above, like, ankle high. What about coyotes? Oh, I hate them too. Uh, well, he never spoke too highly of you. Coyote Calhoun, I'll have you know, was one, one time the Country Music Association Disc Jockey of the Year. He never said a bad word about you. There was a woman who went on Ring once around here, like to alarm everyone in the neighborhood. She's like, oh, the coyotes are back. It was a fox just running through her yard. <clears throat> All righty, that's been Wild Kingdom. And how I this is Reggie's Corner. While I wait in the truck, I'll send Jim Fowler. Uh, but anyway, but yes, more on that in uh, succeeding weeks here on the program. And... But here's something that won't come back to bite you in the ass. See what I did there? Being a customer of Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com, the big sale is going on now. As I mentioned on your program that we did fucking yesterday or whenever it was, we've sold over 600 of the breast cancer pink and black action figures. So that's $6,000 to the American Cancer Society, plus... Jacked up Jeremy Bagley's fundraising efforts and kick in. John Fell is kicking in some amount of money that I don't have in front of me and so many others. And uh, as I said, we're going to be doing the accounting on that and make the contribution at the end of the month. If they last that long, we may sell the other less than 400 uh, by the time that happens. 
And also, less than 500 of the Inside the Ropes magazine with me as your cover boy remain. And the Inside the Ropes DVD, the fastest selling ever. Kenny McIntosh has never been seen by this many people all at the same time as we're about to see him when all these things are hitting the mail. As a matter of fact, the first, we are proud of ourselves. The sale started April 8th, and the first 300 and a little more orders have already been processed and or mailed. And uh, by the time the, the people hear this, we'll probably be hitting the mail stream, uh, the rest of them. And then uh, we're going to be doing another two to 300, I believe, next week as well. So we're we're knocking this thing down. But So get the stuff before it sells out. We'll get it to you as quick as we can is the motto of what we're doing right now. JimCornette.com and T-shirts. Now with T-shirts. That's a great Ryan, motto. do you have a shirt on? I'm wearing a shirt right now, yes. Well, it, it ought to have my face or lazy booking on it, one or the other. It has your lazy booking on it, yes. Hey! <laughs> All right, where do we go from here? Okay, I have a an old-fashioned letter, and that's another thing. I'm, I'm faster on the old-fashioned letters than I am the emails, because when I get a letter in the mail, I open it, right? It's what you do immediately, where with emails, they just stack up, and you know they're there, but you're like, oh, I don't want to fuck with that. But anyway, this is on paper, as you can tell, from Jonathan Ramos in Bayonne, New Jersey, who writes, well, I'll, I'll paraphrase this, because he wrote a long question, but he had, he had heard us talking at one point about I guess it was one of the OVW deep dives or in some uh, talk about OVW or the developmental program at the time. When I, so we specifically, and it was Danny Davis, made it known he would not book anyone on the OVW program that worked for Ian Rotten doing the IWA deathmatch hoo-ha that nearly killed a wrestling business in the state of Kentucky. And so he was asking about that. And he said in a time where the internet was still new, if someone did work a non-deathmatch show, were they still excluded? And what if they <laughs> humbly approached you asking to be booked? And he gives an example that, well, now this guy that's a pretty decent talent worked on for a deathmatch promotion here recently, but it wasn't a deathmatch on that show or whatever. And I thought it might be interesting to bring up, not only in this case or more modern times, but, you know, a lot of stories you hear from the wrestlers is the promoters were crooked and they screwed all the boys and they, you know, kept all the money for themselves and they never got their due and the promoters would blackball the guys, right? And sometimes you hear, but not often, that the boys sometimes were not all innocent and would try to fuck the promoters or did fuck the promoters or try to steal the territory or whatever. Both these things could be true at the, and sometimes at the same time and sometimes for different reasons. In a lot of cases, the promoters did blackball and or try to blackball and or fuck the guys around and or prevent them from making a living. And in some cases, 
not quite as often because the guys sometimes, you know, couldn't get that much pull or power, but they did try to steal the territory or fuck a promoter around by holding him up. We've told the stories, holding him up for more money or getting mad and no showing and walking out or whatever the case. We've told all these stories. But there were also, in some cases, legitimate reasons for things that were done to allegedly blackball somebody because that was the way... The modern fans, Brian, I don't think, understand that there were absolutely not only were there no contracts for the most part in 98% of the time in the territory days and only, you know, rarely in the previous days where a guy like Jack Pfeffer would actually sign guys and be a traveling booking office or whatever. But there were no contracts. There were no written agreements. There were no guarantees. Until a wrestler got either in the office as part of either by buying a piece of the office or by being given a piece because he was a big draw, Lawler in Memphis, Jack Briscoe in Atlanta to, in the war, blah, blah, blah. There, You didn't have a guarantee of anything. It was just whatever the promoter was going to pay you based on whether you were drawing money and whether the company was... the territory was drawing money and the preliminary guys got preliminary money and in some cases for example with ovw on a smaller scale danny davis made the decision because this other promotion had gotten such a bad reputation was doing all the blood and the violence and the bullshit and being called before the commission and getting kicked out of buildings if you're trying to run a promotion that doesn't do that shit and want to be uh, clear of heat with the government and the commission and regulation and be left alone, blah, blah, blah. And because you want to have a distinct identity for your company and your territory or your promotion, you don't want to just advertise the same guys that they see on this other show in other parts of town or the same market. So there's no clear distinction. And this is what's been lost with independent wrestling over the last, what, 25 or 30 years since it's become a big thing, especially in the Northeast, is independent promotions book guys that work every fucking where, even in the same market for multiple other promoters. That was, that was not allowed for various reasons. If you were a successful company a successful territory that had TV somewhere and you brought a guy in and he got over fairly good for you and you made a name for him on, on your television. And then some outlaw promotion starts trying to move into the territory. And that guy goes to work for the outlaws. Then it confuses the fans who didn't live their lives then on the internet. Cause there was none. And by the same token, you don't want to reward the guys who do work for outlaw promotions by giving them jobs later on, either in the same territory or if it's the next door territory, somebody that worked against, for example, when they worked for all South for Ann Gunkel in Atlanta, those guys knew that they weren't going to fucking easily just go up and work for Jim Crockett in Charlotte because he was an NWA member 
just like the established NWA office. Hey, remember in the 90s, you couldn't work for ECW and Dennis Carluzzo. Exactly. Across the river. And, and for various reasons and various times, you didn't want to use talent. You didn't want to encourage talent to work for outlaws or to work for people in your territory against you by then giving them a job. And theoretically, if you were connected, like if you were members of the NWA, you would call all those promoters and say, this fucking guy's working for these outlaws that are running against me. Or this guy is doing, in in the more modern instance, this guy is doing garbage matches that's getting heat on the entire business of pro wrestling in a state with commission and the regulatory agencies. And we're not going to, we're going to make it known that anybody that wants to work for the more successful established uh, company where you could have a bright future by being trained and going to the WWE or whatever the fuck, or instead you're going to work in this fucking roller rink over here, slicing yourself up and you're not going to get that opportunity. And that was to the point why that until CM Punk got signed by the WWE, he would never was ever considered to be booked in OVW because he had worked for Ian Rodden. So it's not like we were excluding. It was just a rule that Danny made, and rightfully so. It wasn't like we were excluding specific talents because they were all the shits, which was most of Ian's crew. It had to be a fucking rule. And uh, conversely, how many times and how many territories did Bob Roop try to steal when when he was two when he was established <laughs> in very quick succession? What was it like in a two or three year period? It was seventy eight and seventy nine. Okay, when uh, he established himself as a talent and was entrusted with either being on top or having a good booking mind and uh, doing some of the booking. And then plotted to steal the territories out from under the promoter because he said they were crooked. He took the job from the crooked people and then tried to steal their promotion that they apparently made with crooked money. Well, again, San Francisco was Roy Shire. And the thing was, oh, look at him. He's disgusting. He's awful. Everyone hated him. Yes. So we must steal from him. But even he had stooges and someone turned that plan in. And then he went and somehow Ron Fuller after that made him the booker. And then when Ron Fuller was busy having a good time down in Alabama, opening that up, Roop was like, hey, why don't we just take Knoxville? We're all here anyway. And Dick Slater called Eddie Graham, who then got word back to Ron Fuller that they were about to steal the Knoxville territory. Two years so, running. Yeah. So it, it worked both ways. The promoters had to have some, and then Bob Roop didn't work for another established office for a couple of years after that. And then and Watts was always, you know, uh, willing to give everybody a chance from somewhere at sooner or later. But think about um, it though. He went from Watts to Ole in 83 when Ole would, you know, Ole wasn't going to turn him away. And then he didn't return to Florida until after Eddie Graham died. I don't think he was ever going to return there if Eddie Graham had stayed alive. No. And then that's pretty much it. But nevertheless, there there had to be some kind of way for the promoters, and I've been on both sides, so I recognize that both are true. Promoters and wrestlers were crooked at various points. 
But the promoters would try to keep the boys in line because there was no contract. There was no paperwork. And, and, you know, a guy could come in and if he got over, there was always the threat that he was going to steal something or muscle himself into a piece, which is why that only in most territories, only people that were really trusted got to that level. But, you know, at the same time, you needed to keep the boys in line and you need, and there had to be the, the recourse to keeping the promoters in line was when there was so many of them. When, when the guys had, when they felt like they were being fucked, there wasn't a contract, give two weeks notice because then the promoters can't really fucking bitch about what you did, but you were free to go anywhere else, as, as anywhere you could get booked. And if you were good and could get over, there was 20 different places to book you. So that was the boys' insurance. And, uh, you know, we've, we've lost quite a bit of all of that now. But there, for various reasons in various places, yes, guys did get blackballed, and yes, guys did steal from the promoters. So it was, but it was a it was a charming business back yeah. then, instead of all this fucking childishness now. But you know, again, the promoters weren't the innocent little children or anything. When Austin Idol cashed that check, <laughs> that's a great moment in wrestling. Oh history. yes, I mean, you know, it worked it worked both ways. You know, and you always, you know, enjoyed hearing heartwarming stories like that when, because it, it, pomposity always needs taken down a peg, right? Um, so wherever it uh, exists, that's, that's fun. Right. You know, it's interesting to the topic of people being blackballed. And again, I apologize for all the lawnmowers or whatever the hell's going on <laughs> in the background. It's driving me out of my mind today. But on that topic, you know, different people. Bruno got blackballed once. Roddy Piper has talked about the fact that Ole got him blackballed, got him fired from he wasn't working for the Carolinas or Georgia for a little while. Yeah, well, they, they, Again, I'm, I'm using their words just to set an example. Well, no, uh, Br- Bruno's was the, the uh, historically proven the truth. I think Roddy was, Roddy was a handful for, to, for people at one point in time to work for or to to have work for you. So there's other things. Anyway. But, you know, there are various things, you know, if you look at things now and you say like, okay, if I had a company, there are different things that if a wrestler did it, I wouldn't want them to be associated maybe with my brand, my company, whatever it may be. It seems like now there's nothing. It's like you can do, before you get to the big show, you could do any stupid thing you want and it's just supposed to be blanket forgiveness and then once you get there, depending on where you're working, you may do the same stupid shit over and over again. <laughs> yes. But, you know, there's like no, oh, this is too far. Like in terms of what you actually do in the ring. It's too far in terms of some of the things that people do outside of the ring or the behavior, or some of them are just complete derelicts. But in terms of in the ring, like what's the, this person went too far. They'll never work here. There isn't anything anymore. You're right. Unfortunately, there used to be, again, standards. and. You know, some things, if you did, people would not ever consider giving you, well, and mostly exposing the business was the biggest one. And you you were pretty blanket fucked across the board. Even promoters who didn't like each other could agree on that. But, I mean, just no unsavory behavior or stupidity or recklessness or whatever is apparently too far these days for... And again, 
even if they say, okay, well, he's going to be on national TV now, and I make the point that everything's worldwide television now with everybody's got a phone in their pocket with a camera, a video camera, and blah, 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 and the internet. So people that would never have been seen or ever heard of outside of one building in Texarkana can now be seen around the world and laughed at and made fun of probably. But it's the concept of everybody just does everything on every show and nobody pays any attention to the professionalism or lack thereof and still gives somebody an opportunity saying, well, that was on the indies. That doesn't make any sense to me because everybody's seen doing everything. But besides that, it's just there's <laughs> there's almost no level of stupidity that these fucking morons can't can stoop to that people will still go, okay, but he throws a nice drop kick, so let's book him or whatever. I don't know. Well, this has been happy talk. Well, from Bayonne all the way to SmackDown, they were in Little Rock, weren't they? Or somewhere in Arkansas. I guess that they had to be in Little Rock. There's nowhere else in Arkansas. Nevertheless, where was Raw, now that I think about it? I don't know. I was taking your word for it. I'm guessing <laughs> you were just making that up. It seemed logical. I think they were there. Uh, nevertheless, I remember Little Rock somewhere lately. Oh, Little Rock, one of my better towns. I remember we were on the Orpheum circuit. Nevertheless, um, I'm making up some shit because it wasn't, there's not that much to talk to. See, here are the different marketing strategies. On AEW television, they get you to watch because you can't believe the ridiculousness, the nonsensicalness, and the stupidity that's going on every second, whereas on Raw, it's three hours and it takes 15 minutes for somebody to walk to the fucking ring. So they're, they're, they're opposite ends of the spectrum, certainly. So the... The Raw program for, did I say SmackDown earlier? I don't think so, did you? I don't know. SmackDown, Raw, whatever it is, another one of these programs. Raw hey. for April 17th. <laughs> I told you I was feeling mentally frustrated. The Usos, Solo, and Paulo come out, and there's lots of milking, and then Paul starts speaking. And music plays, and here comes the Judgment Day. And they do the big face-off. And they did a face-off for quite a while. And as a matter of fact, I like the little thing they did where Rhea and Solo kept eyeballing each other, and Paul reaches over and switches places with Solo and one of the Usos, and then Ripley switches places with Finn, so they'll still still be staring at each other. But they've made a short-term deal, apparently. Paul mentioned that short term about four or five times. Says if there's a heaven, none of us are getting into it. But we're going to make a short term deal, or we have made one. The Usos didn't know about this because Roman made it with the Judgment Day because Roman didn't want anybody to know besides Solo. And uh, obviously there's another loose end with the the bloodline story, but Paul said that... uh, Finn Balor wasn't particularly all good with the deal. So they've got that going with them. But um, basically, Solo's going to deal with Rey Mysterio, the Rey Mysterio problem, and Judgment Day is going to fix Sammy and Owens and Riddle. And that's the 
the arrangement that they've made and Paul did the whole thing and it took a while because did we mention it's a three hour program and nobody gets in a hurry. That's nothing. You asked me, what did I learn from, well, I learned this before I went to work for the WWF, but it was still applicable and possibly even more adhered to than in the days of WCW or Crockett. Your television time is valuable. You know, I mean, maybe, Maybe now they don't consider it valuable because they've got so much of it. But if we wasted the time in those days that they waste now, Vince would have been screaming, do something, get to it, get to action, get to point, get to something. And then Paul, at the end of this thing, actually introduced Rey Mysterio. And here he is, Rey Mysterio. And he comes out and makes his entrance and we go to the break. So that when we come back on the other side, we can see Ray versus Solo. But is that the first time you can remember that the heel manager actually introduced the babyface opponent? Makes sense because I think Heyman was also the first one I saw a heel manager pitched a commercial. Remember one time he was in the middle of the ring yeah. with like Roman Reigns, I smack it. He's like, and we'll be right back after this. And yeah. it went to commercial. <laughs> I thought, you know what? It went on too long, but everything on this show does. At least this was intriguing. Not a fan of Balor with the Judgment Day. I think it becomes more and more obvious that there's something there, especially Priest who's really stepped it up. He seems more and more like a top guy lately. It's the way he's yeah. been dressing, the way he's been acting. Rhea has never seemed like more of a star, and she's great. And Dominic's the perfect little shit heel. There was so much intrigue about them and the Usos and Solo squaring off. They need to do something new with them. So it's intriguing knowing that nothing ever stops at the end of the episode to think what could be coming in the future between potentially the bloodline, whatever that is, and the Judgment Day, if anything. Potentially, allegedly. But anyway, then we get the match. Um... 17 minutes into the program, the bell rings to start the first match, and it's Rey Mysterio against Solo Sokoa, and Solo mostly beats Rey up for about four minutes or so, and then they both take a bump over the top rope, and that's the sign we go to the break. It's the pattern, and we come back, heat on Mysterio. Within a minute, he's making a comeback. Um... Solo hits a big Samoan drop out of nowhere, gets a two count, but then Ray comes back later on, hits a 619 and a splash, gets a two count. And he goes for another 619. Here's the Usos, but the Lucha suits jump them. It's the same people. They have a fight on the floor. Ray hits the 619 again, but misses a splash, and Solo hits the spike. One, two, three. And Solo wins, and then the heels get more heat. And Solo spikes everybody, and the Usos give Ray the 1D. So it's the same people involved doing the same shit. You can't, you can't shoot an angle at the end of every match, or there's no angles because it's just commonplace. And it, it, this show, people come out and talk. Some combination of the people talking have a match. The match is by the numbers, usually interrupted by a commercial break very quickly, has a cheap finish to get out of it, and then everybody fights again. Am I overstating this? 
Well, we would see a lot of these groups again later on in the show, and not all these groups always interact with one another, so there's some uniqueness there because of that. <sighs> in the back. And you know you, you know what? They're about to do the draft. One other thing. They're about to do the draft, yet right now everyone's on both shows. Yeah, I don't know what the- Right? The LWO's now on both shows? Everyone's on both shows. So if they do the soft brand split that they're floating in AEW, soft brand split, that's because they got a soft roster then how are we going to tell the difference there either? Because they don't have enough guys to fucking not have everybody on their shows, and the WWE does, but they don't use the majority of people that they have. And some of them they shouldn't use. As I mentioned in the back, Adam Pierce back there having to suffer the presence of Model Girl, Fat Otis, and Shoosh Boy. And I, if I was the USA Network... I think I would have a serious talk about the money I was paying just for segments like this. What is this for? Who would possibly give a shit about this silliness? It's ah, great shit. And these are grown men. They, Otis doesn't believe he's a model. This model girl isn't a model girl. Shoosh boy is shoosh boy. None of this. And then we go to Bianca Belair against Kai of Kai and Sky. They went two minutes to the break. They came back and went three more minutes. Bianca won. That's as detailed as I can get. Did you see the Bronson Reed package? I did. The recap of last week's match, you mean? Well, and in his little statement that he made and the action highlights of him. Yes. Yes, I watched that. So you know what his mother calls him. Oh, I do not. You know what? Actually, I don't know what he said there. No. Then you don't know what I'm talking They did a packet. Maybe you just glossed over it. I was fast forwarding a lot. Okay. Well, yes. Last week, Bronson Reed and Bobby Lashley got in a big ham-fisted Donnie Brook and ended up getting counted out and had a big fight. Well, they showed some footage of that, but also there was a package of Bronson Reed and the action highlights of him doing all that stuff that he can do with that big frame and, you know, massive blah, blah, blah. But he revealed in it that he's really a nice guy. And as a matter of fact, that's what his mother used to call him, Mr. Nice Guy. So now they have set up, and I wrote in big capital letters, Jesus H. Christ, Bronson Reed's new gimmick is going to be that his mother called him Mr. Nice Guy. Mr. So nice now, he's a heel, Mr. Nice right? Guy. Yes. Okay. And and he's going to be an underneath heel apparently for the rest of his life. Um. Let's get to nine o'clock. Nine o'clock, top of the hour, on the other program this week. We got unknowns, but in this case, we get Cody Rhodes, entrance, dressed to fight, gets to the ring, calls out Brock Lesnar, and instead of getting Brock, we get Adam Pierce. We can't let this happen. Cody, you're not medically cleared. I know how you're feeling, but please leave the ring. Cody says, okay, I'll leave the ring. He gets out of the ring. He pulls a chair out from under the ring. He gets back in. And Pierce says, all right, I got to call security. And here comes security in looking scared to death. Why do they get, I know they want guys that can take a bump. So they get miscellaneous straggly looking job guys from some wrestling school. 
but they look like miscellaneous scraggly job guys from some wrestling school. You wouldn't take these guys seriously as security. They're dressed in generic outfits, and there's always 20 of them, which makes it somewhat ridiculous. Having said all of that, Cody did the best with this that anybody has done in terms of beating up the security because he can't get to the guy he wants to beat up. He made it interesting. But that's what happens. Security comes in looking scared to death with their arms outstretched like, oh, please, don't hurt us, all 20 of us. And then Brock comes out and Pierce says, Brock is taunting Cody to come to the entranceway and fight him, but he can't get through the security. And Pierce tells Cody that I'll make the match for backlash. You versus Brock Lesnar but you just can't do this now, and Cody beats up all the security. But they manage to hold him so that Brock can laugh and walk out, and then Cody top ropes everybody and cuts the promo, so I grew up around cowboys, and Brock, you're not a cowboy, you're a coward. Good point to end on. Cody didn't look as much like a sap as the other people that are put in this position, and he arranged it with the the security guys to where that it looked halfway palatable. It's a bit far-fetched because there's so many of them. But we advertised or were advertised to that Cody was going to be face-to-face in the ring with Brock Lesnar and have it out. And what we got was a little, you know, a little bait and switch. But it, it at least there was something going on and it's stars. So I wasn't completely opposed to it. What are your thoughts? This was ridiculous. The last line <laughs> of the promo was the best part. I know cow. I grew up around cowboys. I knew Jack Kennedy. You hey, are you no s- Jack Kennedy. You, Senator, are no Jack Kennedy. <laughs> That's what this was. That was the best part of this. But Cody beating up 15 security guys who don't look like security guys. Yeah. And it went on for a while. Like you saying he beat them up is one thing. He's beating him up, it seemed like, for minutes at a time while Brock's just standing there yeah, dressed like Jeff Jarrett when he debuted in AEW. And nobody really got a good, even a lucky punch in on Cody. You would have thought with all those guys, somebody could have got one. Well, between Brock and Trish, is that the new move? If you're going to be a heel, get a black cowboy hat and a black trench coat and <laughs> walk out there. That's, you know, I thought, I almost think this would have been as effective if Cody just did a really strong promo and then eventually talk to Pierce about the match, as opposed to having Brock come out there just to smile and do nothing, and Cody can't get to him, while having this almost AEW Cody-like confrontation with all these security guards. I didn't like it. Well, and by God, shit on him then. You have to have your own independent opinion. You can't go based on what I said. People are going to think you're a parrot. Well... I've changed my mind. Now, I hated the whole thing. Just No, like you- no, I didn't say that. I, don't want, I want you to have an independent no. thought. Well, my independent thought was that it's the same shit that we've seen a lot. He did a better job with it than most, but it was still, as I mentioned, a little much to take. But speaking of a little much to take, we got another confrontation between The Miz and Seth Franklin Rollins. And they did another thing that now has become a thing that happens every week where the heel will jump the baby face and beat him up, and then the referee will ring the bell to start the match. <laughs> but I don't understand. What the fuck? When did they think that this was a thing that was done in wrestling? How did this suddenly become... 
So anyway, they go two minutes to the break. They come back. They actually got some more time to have a match after the break, but it was Miz. So Seth Franklin Rollins won it. Did I miss anything that would change my perception of anything? I think his music is over. I think him leading the audience and singing is over. He's very talented in the ring, but I just hate his gimmick so much. I can't get, and I'm not really feeling a match with him in the Miz right now. Well, speaking of not feeling things, um, there was trouble in paradise in the babyface locker room. There was Sammy and Owens and Riddle in the back, and Sammy is pitching to Kevin, hey, let's let Riddle share his ideas for the six-man tag. And Owen says, hey, just leave the thinking to us. And then, of course, Riddle wants to counteract Solo's spike by taping his toe and calling it the toe bro. But then he says, when Owens is losing his mind of bullshit, he said, no, I'm not serious. And Riddle tried to do a serious promo. Said, you think I'm just a moron and I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to jack around. Well, no, they've... They've done things to me, too, and I want to get even with them. I'm not here to be an idiot. Well, too late by about five years. But so now we've established that Riddle's going to try to be serious for once. I thought this was all right. You know, I'm very critical of him usually. I'm not a big fan, but I thought this was pretty good. And the fact that he immediately pointed out that the silly idea was just, in fact, that. It was all right. Can't complain too much about this. How come it took him five years to get serious about anything? I don't know. I also think his outfit holds him back for me. I don't know. He's dressed. Well, yeah, it, it's it's the whole visual is ridiculous. He looks, speaks, and dresses like a fucking idiot. No, I'm pretty sure he speaks like that. Would you? <laughs> I'm not going to take that away from him. I'm pretty sure that's all him. But yeah, I mean, now he's in the main event mix, and obviously they're they're trying hard. Well, at any rate, the next match I watched because. Uh, there was talent involved, and I wanted to see what was going to happen. Bobby Lashley and Austin Theory. And remember I said that last week, the whole problem, Lashley and Reed, is two big guys. There was no bumper. There's nobody to make the, the big, strong guy look big and strong. And conversely, then there's no action because neither guy, if you're having a monster battle, can bump around. In this case, Lashley was the best he's looked in a while, thanks to their booking. He was aggressive. It looked good because Theory can move. And I, I I noted I would have loved to have seen Austin Theory on the roster in 1986 in Jim Crockett Promotions or 1984 in Mid-South Wrestling or 1981 in Memphis or any time in the 70s in Florida. He would have just one year of working with talent like that getting experience every night against different guys. He would have fit in. He would have learned and grown quickly. I think he's a fast learner if he wasn't. Unfortunately, he's tied up in the WWE system and he's learning the WWE style. And we won't really ever know probably how good he could have been with, with the, the top talent in the territories on his own, doing his own shit. I think he would have been fantastic. I think he would have fit in. But there's not a ton of guys to work with here if you want to be a wrestler instead of a sports entertainer, and and that limits him, and also the fact that the matches are made to be completely unimportant. But nevertheless, they went three whole minutes to the break and before Lashley posted him, and they came back, and Lashley was still kicking his ass. 
And I'm thinking, well, it's four minutes to the top of the hour, so I wonder what their top of the hour business is going to be. So anyway, um, Lashley went for the hurt lock. Theory bit his fingers and posted him and got on him. And I thought then I'm going to love, hopefully, we'll get to see Randy Orton and Austin Theory. I think those will be tremendous, or those matches. Um, Theory's left-handed and left-footed, and it still works. Anyway... Lashley misses his, or Theory rather, misses a charge into the buckle and Lashley makes a big comeback right at 10 o'clock. So their 10 o'clock top of the hour is Lashley making a comeback. And he gets a two count and then he gets the hurt lock and Theory backs him up into the corner and suddenly Bronson Reed is in the ring from nowhere and, and splashes both of them in the corner, Theory and fucking Lashley. And in theory, drops and rolls out. You don't see him for a minute. And Reed kicks Lashley out to the floor, splashes him into the post, and they started pouring the fake booze in. And you could tell the people were kind of like, uh. And then Lashley started a comeback and went to get the hurt lock on Reed again. And that's when Theory reappears. And drop kicks him and then disappears again. And Reed then hits a Samoan drop and a splash off the top rope and more fake booze. And I don't think the people like this, the people that were watching it, as much as the soundtrack that was being played while it was going on. Do you? There were various moments in the show, and we'll talk about the Trish Stratus promo in a bit, where I thought they were piping in a lot of stuff, but I couldn't exactly tell. This was another one. I think because of the way Bobby Lashley's been booked for, it's been months now. Yeah. It's hard to invest in him. And Theory, as talented as Lashley is, I think it almost holds Theory back wrestling him again. Didn't we just see this match on TV a few weeks ago? And it, it seems like it. But they're trying to do something with him and Reed, and hopefully that includes not recreating last week's match. <laughs> Well, at this point, it was past 10 o'clock, and you know what was calling me, Brian? You know what was whispered in my ear, the voice that I heard resounding throughout my brain? The raccoon? No, no, no. Raccoons don't speak English. It was my mattress. I was hearing the word helix, helix, helix. You can sleep. Because I was nodding off already with what I was watching. It's past 10 o'clock. It's past my bedtime. Time to lay my weary body down on a Helix sleep mattress. And that's exactly what I did. And I came back and I watched the rest of the program the very next morning, refreshed, feeling better, not as mentally frustrated and as tired and burnt and worn out as I had been before because... Even when you watch bad wrestling for a living, you can refresh yourself on the platform of the gods, the giant marshmallow in the sky known as a Helix Sleep Mattress. Platform of the gods. I like that. I never heard that before. The platform of the gods. Because you're up there in the stratosphere. You're floating around on the top of Mount Olympus, and you're there in in the beautiful, soft tufts and folds of a fluffy cloud that comes from helix sleep and there's so many different kinds of these fluffy clouds there's fluffy clouds for people that sleep on their back or their side or their stomach 
or upside down. There's fluffy clouds for kids. There's fluffy clouds for fluffy people that are too fat and corpulent and obscenely morbidly obese for normal mattresses. Jesus, will you be nice? Sure I will. There's also a mattress for tall people whose feet hang over the end of the bed at most of these joints. And there's also mattresses that cool you down, heat you up, and everything in between. Why, they even have mattresses. Well, they'll just rub you with tiny little fingers implanted in the mattress. They'll rub up and down your private parts from one side to the other while you're asleep. And you'll never even know it except for the stain when you wake up in the morning. All these things and many more can happen to you when you're sleeping on a Helix Sleep mattress. And how, you may ask, do you get to do something like this? How do you qualify? How do you, how do you earn the right to sleep on the most comfortable mattress surface in history? And the answer is quite simple. You go to helixsleep.com and you answer some questions. And now this is going to be a tough questioning. They're going to put a spotlight in your eyes. They're going to say, where did you sleep on the night of August 5th? And if you don't have a good answer, they're going to lock you up for 30 years. But once you take that quiz... Wait, Helix Sleep is going to lock the listeners up for 30 years? Well, if you if you admit to any serious crimes during the course of this cross-examination... So the police will also be involved. It's not just a Helix jail that they maintain. Yeah, they're going to bring in some authorities. They're going to give you the going over. They're going to they're going to know where you've been and what you've done and who you associate with. And once you take that quiz on helixsleep.com, it only takes 2 minutes. It's some very intense questioning for those 2 minutes, but then they'll know exactly what kind of mattress you want and what would be best for you. And then they will send that to your door along with some people that will bring it in. And then you can go about unboxing it and putting it where you want it. Unless you ask the people to bring it in and put it where you say you you like the look of that delivery guy. And you say, hey, come on to my bedroom and unbox my mattress with me. That's perfectly up to you. These are not the things that should be going through the minds of the listeners when they get their Helix Sleep mattress. You should leave the delivery personnel alone. Well, no, Helix Sleep does not mess in your intimacy or in your personal life, if you want to hit on the delivery person and have him carry the mattress into your bedroom and potentially test it out, it's up to you. No, it's not, not up to you. That's involved. not an offer. That's not something offered well, it's by a, you. It's up sleep. to you and it's up to the delivery person. It's up to the two consenting no. adults involved. Helix will not get involved in this. They, Lady, they've sent the mattress. Their hands are clean now. Ladies and gentlemen, anyone associated with this show, don't proposition them for sex if they're delivering an item to your house. Well, then Please. nobody associated with the show is going to deliver the item. It's going to be somebody associated with Helix and or the shipping department or service that they use to ship the mattress to you. But if they're over 18 and you're over 18, you could ask them to bump uglies no, on you your brand new mattress. <laughs> anyway, Helix also oh, supports... What happens when like, a John Fell orders a mattress? He said, I mean, you're not thinking this out, clearly. it's Well, no, well, then, but, but John's a married man, so it'd have to be a female delivering the mattress, because we know that he's not bi-coastal like that. We know that. But nevertheless, the Helix supports the military, the first responders, teachers, and students, but only students over the age of 18 if they're going to be having any hanky-panky when they come to the door. You're and not, unlike you stop, you're not going to be having hanky-panky at the door. Let people deliver. People no, will be delivering these mattresses. Close the door. You don't want to do that out in public. 
Unlike a lot of mattress companies out there, Helix owns its own manufacturing facility. And each mattress is made in the USA by a team of skilled manufacturers who have been sentenced by the court to perform this type of work. No. For a certain period of time. There's no period. There's no. There's. <sighs> it's just open-ended. They have to do this for the rest of their life. There are no court orders. That is there is any a good behavior parole? One thing we could promise you is no court orders, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you won't get one, but the people who make it, they've been put there specifically for that. Because no, they there's, haven't. No. They're a court-mandated mattress makers. Who? The Helix Court? The same people yes. that control the Helix Jail? Yes. They've got a whole system. <laughs> if they get you from start to finish, you ought to see the judge. Anyway, is there anything worse than going to a mattress store? And laying down on a mattress that you know hundreds of people have tried out before you, but none of them are still there, just their residue. You don't even get to lay down next to some stranger and possibly get acquainted. Just their residue is there. You don't want to do that. You order these things, they come brand new to your door. Nobody's laid on these things until you and or your delivery personnel break them in. Anyway, right now, you can go to helixsleep.com slash jce because they're offering up to 20 percent off all the mattress orders and two free pillows so you can prop something up under your head or potentially underneath your back you know any position you want to be in you can take these pillows and just jam them under you and it'll prop you up in a particular location 20 percent off and two free pillows for our listeners if you go to helixsleep.com slash jce right now better sleep Starts right now with Helix, or sometimes right after you've had aggressive, intimate relations. Then you'll go to sleep. You can do all these things on a Helix mattress. Sometimes with people that you know personally. Hopefully every time with people you know personally, but Helix sleep may be a good way to go to sleep. Raw may not always be a good way to go to sleep. Well, we're going back to Raw, aren't we? Um... Trish Stratus in the ring for a promo, taking credit for single-handedly changing the women's division. It was a joke before her, is what she says. Brian, I've never paid attention to Trish, 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 Trish Stratus's. Clearly you haven't. I've never paid attention to <laughs> Trish Stratus's promos because she was well before we actually started watching this, this stuff and talking about it on the air here. Was this it, or was she rusty? I mean, this is kind of it for heel Tristratus. I thought this was an okay promo for what it was. I Again, it's, you know, the, the lights go down and the dramatic WWE reading starts. She's kind of standing the same way and talking the same way as everybody else does. It reminded me of if somebody was running a, a training camp and wanted the talent to do an audition promo in the style of WWE. That's what I zoned out. She talked a while and people wanted her a few times and she was finished talking and she walked out. It was a recitation of prepared material. Question is, is she any better at this ever? Or is this where it was, where it is? Well, again, her argument was that, you know, everything started because of her. Everyone should be giving credit to her. She's right in one sense. She was like the first of like the super hot women that wrestling all of a sudden had that started to wrestle and was okay at it. In that way, she's exactly right. 
So now okay is the bar that we have to strive for. Well, she was really good in her time, but you go back and you watch some of those things now, maybe they're a little sloppier than you remember or anything, but she was she was good, but it is a different world now. Were they piping in booze during the I don't know. I'd have, I wish I'd have had a glass. <laughs> I could have taken a shot or two, might have made this interview go back quicker. That's not what I meant. Are you looking forward now to, I guess, is she feuding with Lita or, no, she's feuding with Becky. Yes, because she turned on Becky. So is Lita gone? I don't know. Right. I guess we'll find out. And Cody did a promo in the back, and apparently they just said, you know, just fill 30 seconds or fill a minute or whatever. He's happy. He's wrestling Brock at Backlash is what we got. He was very well-spoken, but had nothing to really say. And then Raquel and Liv, every week, if we could have seen as much FTR in AEW as we've seen of Raquel Rodriguez and Liv Morgan, while well, I'd be ecstatic. Both shows. And again, they put poor Raquel on nitrous oxide. <laughs> I talked about it on the drive-thru. What a look she had. The mean face, the black leather, the fuck. And now she's, she's a taller version of all their other happy girl wrestlers now. With makeup and a hairdo and smiling. And Raquel and Liv sat at ringside while Cruella and Chelsea fought Candy LaRue and Mia Yim. And the heels won in three minutes and then threw water on Liv and Raquel. And left. Did I miss anything? I missed it too. Okay, well the girls segment was over at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and after the commercial breaks, all the plugs, backstage bullshit, and entrances, the main event started at 10.45, so it took them 15 minutes to get one match over and the other match in the ring. And that was the six-man tag match with the Judgment Day against Sammy and Kevin and Riddle. And again, it, it by the time they ring the bell, they've got, 12 or 12 minutes left because they're always going to end up a couple minutes early so we can see what happens and there'll be a little fallout and they're going to take a break in the middle of that so we've sat through three hour program to get usually about fucking nine minutes of the main event on the air and it was a match it was a wwe match and everybody in it's fine riddle's whole style is awkward as fuck Everything he does, whether he's pitching or catching, offense or defense, I wouldn't want to work with him. I don't know who would want to work with this guy unless you studied him for months. You'd never know what the fuck direction anything was coming from. Is it none of it? It just, I don't know what the fuck. Um, this thing really didn't pick up until Sammy finally made a big comeback and the excitement level picked up because he's just, he's quick and he's good. And then... Ripley crotched Sammy on the top rope and uh, fucking uh, um, who's he, what's he, Dominic hit a frog splash and Owen saved and then everybody did everything to each other quickly and then Rhea tripped Sammy again and the referee ejected Ripley. But really by the time the e e ejection or rejection happened, 
They're already going into this finish. Owens hits Finn with a stunner. And then Sammy hit Finn with a kick, and then Riddle hit a cannonball off the top, and they beat Finn. Finn is the designated job guy. If there needs to be one, he's the one to be in the judgment day, and they beat him one, two, three. And as soon as they did, here comes Solo and the Usos, and they hit immediately and get more heat. Because, again, it's a match, so naturally the heels have to fucking get heat afterwards in everything. And then music plays, and here comes Rey Mysterio and the Lucha suits in, and they had a big fight, and it was chaos, and that was fairly exciting. Although the crowd during this big fight with all these people started chanting, we want tables, which means that they've now they've pretty much ruined the fans. Between the what thing in interviews and any time a fight breaks out, the people are chanting for furniture instead of the talent involved. They've ruined the fans. Um, the last few minutes of this was very exciting. Leading up to it was nothing wrong with it. It was a WWE match, so it was neither really good nor horribly amateurish. It was there until it was over. It's kind of like a big bowl of oatmeal with no sugar. It's there. You're not really enjoying it, but it's not going to make you sick either. Sounds like a good description of WWE Raw, as we just saw it. Well, there you had it. And folks, all I've got to say, to be quite honest with you, all that I have got to say about Monday Night Raw is if you don't want people to know that you are downloading this content, you need to spoof your location. You need to hide where you are. You need to confuse people, make people think that you're over in the British Isles, or maybe you're in Cambodia, or maybe you're in, maybe you're in a naval station, a weather station somewhere in Antarctica, but not where you are because if people find out that behind closed doors and on the internet and the privacy of your own home, you're watching this WWE programming, you could be held up to ridicule and scorn. And the only way that you're going to be able to hide from that is to sign up with ExpressVPN. Now, we've talked about their service before, ladies and gentlemen, how they will come to your home with band saws and sawzalls and skill saws and hammers and chisels, and they will get the people that the internet service providers have sent to your home out of your walls. You will not be spied on anymore by these eavesdropping no-good son-of-a-bitches hiding in your walls, your attics, and your crawl spaces watching what you download on your internet. No. No more of that with ExpressVPN. People won't be able to tell what you're doing. As a matter of fact, you will be able to hide your location and your activity from everybody, except potentially the FBI. Yeah, you will still then, get busted by law enforcement if you do anything stupid. So, ladies and gentlemen, what well, you're saying about a is be responsible. Shot. It's a 50-50 shot. You can get some protection from law enforcement if you sign up with ExpressVPN superficially. They're probably going to track you down at some point either way. But if you want to just get away from the, the prying eye and the thumb of the man in terms of your internet service providers, then ExpressVPN is the way to go because it's blazing fast. You know, a lot of these other VPNs slow your connection down to the point where it's not even worth it to connect because then it's slower than molasses in January, as Mama Cornette used to say. But with ExpressVPN, they don't lag. 
They don't buffer either Michael or Bruce. They get straight to the point. It's quick, just like that, quicker than a hiccup. And it couldn't be easier because all you have to do is open the ExpressVPN app and click one button and you'll have instant protection across all your devices. Your car will be protected. Your stove in your kitchen will be protected. Your microwave oven, your clock radio next to your bed, all of your devices will be protected from people spying on them. You know, it's, it's terrible. But I understand that several people in Russia were the victim of the KGB. They put a bug in their clock radio. And every morning, the clock radio would wake those people up one minute earlier every day. So it was such a small increment that you couldn't tell until finally it killed those people because they were waking up a minute earlier every day until the point where they didn't get any sleep at all. And then they died of sleep deprivation. What are, you talking? what are you talking about? Well, if these internet service providers get in all of your devices and take over That's and control them That's not how it works. And they can a... make... Imagine when they start turning what? your air conditioning off in the middle of the summer. Or maybe it's the middle of the wintertime and your internet service provider that's in your walls and snooping on you turns your heat off and your whole family freezes to death. So how exactly would you utilize ExpressVPN to fight that? Well, ExpressVPN... You click on the app, you open it, you click on the button, and all your devices are protected. Anything you got in your house, it's all protected. Not anything the, you have in your house. It and has the to be evil, cruel internet service providers oh can't take you hostage and, and, and control from a remote location somewhere in the Arctic Circle. They can't control all of your machinery in your house. Imagine if they sabotage your toaster. You won't be able to have a fucking sandwich. You would need a smart toaster for that to be what happened. ExpressVPN.com slash JCE. That's the place you get extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. So that means three more months of these nosy, snoopy, overreaching internet service providers not knowing what wholesome family activities you're into on the internet. It's none of their business. That's right. If you want to look up Shirley Temple's filmography, they shouldn't know about it. If you want to look up how to make a Shirley Temple. They shouldn't know about it. They have no business snooping into your Shirley Temple fandom. So right now, if you'd like sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, and waterfalls on your internet without the internet service provider knowing that you're into sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, and waterfalls... <laughs> expressvpn.com slash jce three extra months of service absolutely free you can't live without it you can't do without it you got to get on it right now expressvpn and speaking of which what do they got to get on this week over at the arcadian vanguard network with all the news the scoops the gossip and the underground activities. Get down with it. The Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. Of course, the wrestling news. Each and every day, your free daily wrestling morning newscast. Download it directly from TheWrestlingNews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This week, on Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon, his guest is Mary Freeze, the daughter of Pampero Furpo. Check out this conversation today. Who still remembers Pampero Furpo? We do. That's right. And find out more about him today at suawpod.com 
or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget about the 605 Super Podcast, The Membership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mothership. All right, as it appears now, a B-52 bomber is is landing in Brian Lass' backyard. What is going on? We will now go to, what are you now in the Air Force? I'm not sure what's happening. There's, there, you're saying that it's not entirely outrageous at this point. It's so this, loud back there. The the thunder over Louisville air show is not till this weekend. Are the are the planes leaving LaGuardia or I think they're doing a practice round back there, maybe. Good heavens. What was the what Jeez. was the old before they renamed it Kennedy? What was the name of that airport? Idlewild. Idlewild. Don't you That's know Car right. 54? Yes. Well, hold on, hold on. Um there's Shit. a holdup in the Bronx. There's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout there's troop short scout a child. Troop short a child. Cruise ships do it. Idle wild. Car, Car 54, 54. Where are you? Where are you? I couldn't get the first line. <laughs> God damn it! Once you get that, you get the momentum going. You get I the guess. the flow, basically. What's your favorite? After your prime period, let's say 1975 on, because you like- Wait a minute, I've been, what, you mean I've been out of my prime for almost 50 years now? No, but what I mean is in terms of this- I did a lot of prime <laughs> shit after, after my prime, apparently. In terms of the theme songs you seem to like, it's prime time stuff from the 60s more than the 70s, let alone the late 70s, early 80s. From that period of time, from the late 70s into the 80s, any favorite TV themes? Well, now that you've just hit me with that question cold, I'm completely blank because I'm mentally burnt and fucking energetically frustrated to begin with. But no, I like 70s TV show themes also, for heaven's sake. You like Three's Not Company? Just the 60s. Three's Company? Eh, all in the family. Well, well what's eh? as the music or as the show, Three's Company? Oh, hey, either one. Really? It's a good show. You don't like Three's Company? I always thought it was a little childish. Wow. A little childish. What about different strokes? Did you like different strokes? Eh. Eh. What's happening? Eh. Really? Eh. I love these shows. I can't. What, no, good. What's happening was not good times for the Jeffersons. No, exactly. It was better. Oh, come on. I love what's happening. That was better. No. Are you out of your mind? I'm not out of my mind. For, for George alone, much less Bentley. Much less fucking George, did I mention? Yeah, you mentioned George. And yes. Bentley. <laughs> I'm talking Raj and Rerun. Well, rerun was, rerun was better in the lockers. That's right. He was one of the lockers. There you see there. And Jimmy Scooby-Doo. How's it uh, Tony Basil. Speaking of Scooby-Doo, should we talk about all elite Scooby-Doo? All elite Scooby-Doo? What a transition. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's talk about all elite Scooby-Doo this week. We'd get there sooner or later, <laughs> folks. You knew it. We had to go around our elbow to get to our wrist, as Ain't Lola and Mama Cornette both used to say. So, AEW on April 19th. And I'm so... Just tired of talking about this stuff lately. I'm not going to be as caustic 
as I am possibly analytical. They were trying to do some things here. It's just that nobody there has actually got the... They, they have a beautiful puzzle that they've got a thousand-piece puzzle, but everybody's got different pieces of it, and, and nobody's interlocking their own shit. Um, like the lockers. Like the lockers. See, I know it back there. Uh, and speaking of lockers, here's another guy that probably got stuffed in one when he was in high school. Jungle Boy comes out and it enters and starts to talk. And before he gets two words out, music interrupts him. Thank goodness. And here came Sammy Guevara. And he comes out and he starts to talk and music interrupts him. <laughs> And it's Darby, of course. Now we've got the three challenging pillars. Jungle Boy, Sammy Guevara, and Darby Allen. At least they're doing something on a weekly basis with this, even if it's wrong, as Mama Cornette used to say. <sighs> I'm going to talk about some good stuff and some bad stuff. With all three of these guys in the ring, it's not a great visual when all three of them look like unkempt teenagers dressed in grubby, unwashed street clothes. There, there, it's not that everybody has to be in a suit, but they just look especially... Darby's gimmick is he's unkempt. I know that. Jungle Boy just looks like he doesn't give a shit. And Sammy could at least look like he's going out to a fucking nightclub somewhere and get away with it, but instead he looks like he's going to a skate park somewhere. And getting away with it. And here's what happened. Then I'll talk about why it probably shouldn't have. Darby told Sammy that he was the least qualified of the bunch of them for a title match. Because while Darby and Sting treat each other as equals, Jericho doesn't treat him like an equal. He holds him back. So this is their version of a shoot interview. <laughs> and Darby tells Jungle Boy the Jungle Boy had to work the least hard because he's in the California clique. And he was jealous at first of Jungle Boy, but then he realized that nothing about Jungle Boy intimidates him at all. <laughs> and then Jungle Boy, oh my fucking God, the sounds you heard from the Tampa-St. Petersburg area was Eddie Graham spinning in his grave to the point where Florida <laughs> almost became its own fucking continent. And then Jungle Boy came back at Darby Allen and told him that, well, I see these kids out here painting their faces like you. Yes, I don't see any of the kids out there wearing fucking loincloths like Jungle Boy. Do you? There's probably a fucking statute against that anyway, kids and loincloths. But nevertheless, kids paint their faces like you, but Darby Allen, if we, if they knew who you really are like we do, you're antisocial, you're unfriendly, and you're rude to people that are not as cool as you. And Darby's there because you didn't make you didn't want to be here to begin with. You didn't make it as a skateboarder. Oh my fucking God. I I don't know where to start as a former booker, matchmaker, agent, producer, talent scout, instructor slash promo trainer. My God. 
what it what they've done is they've accentuated in trying to do a shoot promo that all the smart fans will think oh they've accentuated every single negative quality of of two of their alleged baby faces and Sammy who who knows what the fuck he is including himself at this point because he he switches back and forth from fucking heel to baby face in in mid promo multiple times over trying to pull this off this shit off somehow and and I ain't I ain't even got to him yet speaking but just it so far for one thing jungle boy as we've mentioned is where jungle boy is going to be and it's just it, that's fine he's i'm not saying set fire to him but he he shouldn't be in this picture it's confusing the issue and sammy is the one least qualified for a title match for the shoot reasons that they just told us so it should be darby being built and programmed with a single-minded focus to fucking take mjf down before the rick flair Kiss dealing, wheeling, dealing, and Dusty Rhodes, son of a plumber, every man dichotomy that we fucking spoke of last week. But instead, they're tearing. And again, Darby, they've got something. They've got something with him. The kids paint their faces like him. He's got the charisma. He can make the fucking diving, flipping shit it he uses his body as a weapon and he should be the one doing the majority of that in the company instead of everybody and it'd mean even more and you can draw money with this fucking guy so this mid card at best babyface with the personality of coleslaw not even the vinegar kind just the fucking prickly tasteless white kind says you're antisocial you're unfriendly and rude to people not as cool as you are when his whole thing is wrapped up in all the kids the uncool kids want to be the outsiders the misfits they want to be like this guy well he don't like them if they ain't cool and you don't like wrestling you just did it because you flunked out as a skateboarder i'm not sure how you fail as a skateboarder i don't know what how many job openings there are for skateboarders but well endorsements once you've become a skateboarder is there do you where do you go to hire on to be a skateboarder well it's not like that you have to illustrate your skills uh on you the have to do open field and completely for free and risk breaking your fucking neck before somebody will pay you because you didn't break your neck yet he seems good at that the point is they're tearing down their only attraction with this fucking insistence on stealing a Japanese angle because there were four pillars in the company of New Japan in 1990-whatever that now there have to be four pillars even though this is the most fucking lopsided fucking four-legged table I've ever seen in my life. And then <laughs> Jungle Boy 
actually put Sammy over more than he did per as a person and a wrestler than Darby Allen, but then still called him a scumbag piece of shit and shit got bleeped. Remember, that's a theme. We're going to go through the program here. And then Sammy tore down Jungle Boy and Darby because both of them were handpicked to be in their spots. And then he bitched because I guess they weren't booked on a pay-per-view or he wasn't. And Sammy's promo was more babyface than the other guys at one point until, and he tried to fire up and walked away from the people he was talking to, to talk to the hard camera to get, to try to get, here's what I wrote. This is a psychological mess, not helping any of the three inside mealy mouthed complaining three guys who don't know how to verbally take care of themselves or the others whining at each other with bad material. Your thoughts. Yes, I would agree with all that. It was utterly fascinating watching it. Darby, it seems is getting more and more confident on the mic. Yes. And I like Darby, but I feel like everyone needs a cap of like, I don't know, 30 seconds or 45 <laughs> seconds or something. Everyone gave a long speech. Jungle Boy is not fitting in this at all to me. He gets the pop because he comes out first and people like to wave their arms to his music. And not even that many people. Usually the camera has to find people and it's like three people sitting next to each other waving their arms around. And Sammy, I think, has been pretty good in this. Darby had something great going with MJF last week, so let's do this. I don't disagree with what you said before, but to make this a little bit of a bigger question, and I know I'm not the only one feeling this way because I'm now starting to see things and we're starting to get emails even about it. They did something similar to this a few weeks back with all four of them in the ring. A few weeks back, maybe a month back, I don't know. Now this. The ring ropes all of a sudden are red, white, and blue. It's starting to feel more and more like WWE. Like WWE Raw in the, like, <laughs> I don't want to say in the mid-90s just because just of the ropes, but it's starting to feel more WWE-like in terms of opening up with, I, I didn't even look, you would know, 15, 20 minutes of these yeah. guys just one after it was another. 15. It seemed like 45, but it was 15. You, you understand what I'm saying? Oh, it's starting to feel like a different show than AEW has always been. I don't know if that's the influence of the new producer that they brought in or just, you know, this is what they think it should look like. But I don't know. That That's the other thing. It's starting to feel like a different company in some of these segments. I shouldn't say that, but you know. Well, well, no, I, I see what you mean, but let's clarify, not content, formatting-wise, concept-wise maybe, but not content-wise, because I don't remember a WWF or WWE program ever starting out with three allegedly top talents, talents being utilized in a prominent position, coming out and shoot listing each other's drawbacks <laughs> and unqualifications for why they shouldn't be there. When you've got three guys that all want a title shot, usually they're coming at it from the direction of, I deserve this. They already, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion that they feel that they deserve it and they deserve it more than each other. Not, I'm the only one that deserves it because you people have been given your spot hand handed by the promoter or picked by the, whatever the fuck <laughs> and talking about the shoot legitimate bad qualities that the only popular baby face in the equation has Darby Allen. Can you imagine if they did this like in the eighties 
And they said, go out there and do that. You cheat on your wife and do drugs everywhere. Oh, yeah? Well, you have a girlfriend in every town and you're sleeping with Pat Patterson. Like, it would have just been a ridiculous mess. There would have been literally le- <laughs> legitimate fist fights uh, two minutes into promos if they had had done this, the equivalent of this to each other. Yes. But anyway, then after all that happens, MJF comes out and blisters all three of them and announces the Pillars Tournament where the winner will face MJF for the title at double or nothing. He pulls a name out of a hat. He gave a production assistant comes, brings him a hat with the names that he calls for. And he pulls the name out of the hat, and it's Darby Allen. So Darby gets the bye in the first round, and Sammy and Jungle Jack Boy have to face face each other tonight to determine who gets Darby. And here's another. They bleeped MJF saying that the production assistant that came out, it looked like he had pubic hair glued to his face. And then he said shit that they plainly didn't bleep or even missed, didn't try to bleep. There's things going on with the language on the program now. I'm having a feeling they get a certain number of shits or goddams approved, and if it's not on the list, they're trying to bleep this shit. But anyway, it took us 15 minutes to get there, and again, with the... I mean, if they're trying to appeal to young people, this looks like a bunch of, or a bunch of, in this case, it looked like three teenage fucking skateboarding wrestlers, you know, arguing with each other. But it didn't do anything for any of them, especially Darby. I thought it's hurt the worst just by having to go through this. Instead of, if they'd have taken the same energy trying to that they've spent trying to shoehorn jungle jungle perry and sammy into this thing in having a coherent focused push for darby as a underdog defying all odds winning some kind of getting a big singles victory and then maybe another two or three weeks after that out of the blue and verbal interaction that Sammy or not that uh, Darby and MJF have had already could have been figured into the, and you'd you'd be building a money match instead of this fucking foolishness if they do this i guess two week tournament or whatever this is to build up to the pay-per-view and still end up with a four way is it worth it to do all this no god no so they definitely can't do that if they end up with a four-way, then Jesus Christ, that will be the a four-way with all these jokers will not sell as well as MJF and Darby with a story and a reason and a and people caring about it. Then it there then it's going to be the same audience that already buys whatever they buy or whatever they sell that just wants to see four guys diving off a fucking ladder. But they've got national television, and they've got weeks, and they would have an opportunity to do something like what Punk did, what maybe they've done a time or two before, is get the people that don't normally buy the shit, that just watch it for free, but say, you know what? They've got me with this one. I might want to see this. I'll spend fucking whatever. The cock is free now. 
So I might as well pay for the pussy anyway. What? What a segue to the next match. Ruby Soso and Tony Storm with Soraya in the corner against Jamie Hayter and Dr. Britt Baker. And of course, it's they're in Britsburg, Britt's hometown. And remember, we're, we're going to see a bunch of alleged violence tonight, attempted violence. But they already have to start with the very first match, and it's the girls, and especially with what they're going to do later on, they jumpstart this girls' tag team match on the entrance ramp, and they have an incredibly fake-looking four-way fight on the floor. The whole first two minutes looked like they found four girls outside standing in line to buy a ticket and put them in a ring and said, do the shit you've seen on television. It was 100 miles an hour. It was sloppy. It was in and out of the ring, constant four-way, awkward. And then they went to the fucking break. And I didn't come back. But what, what was that? I thought it was an all right match. There are definitely elements of sloppiness. I think Hater's really good. Hater's too good for AEW. Well, the problem is she's working with a sack of wet hammers then. This was, I believe, some kind of statement because it was a women's tag team match. No, I'm serious. It was a women's tag team match. It was the first match on the show in, I guess, segment two. So there is something to be said there. The fact that they had this match. I know it is Britt's hometown. And her mom's at ringside getting spray painted or whatever the hell was going on. But this is a women's match early in the show. So they're trying to, and based on where they go later on in the show, they're trying to do something here. Yeah, they're trying to do something there. Um, anyway, something else they were trying to do with another hometown boy, Rene Moxley Good, was in the back with Wardlow. This is apparently his hometown also. And it's starting to be, it's like the old fucking joke in wrestling. I can't do a job here. It's too close to my hometown. He barely got the words out. He, it, Wardlow does not seem comfortable with the microphone, but they keep putting him in positions where the one's in front of him. And he barely got the words out to introduce Arn Anderson. Because remember long ago, Wardlow was in one of the groups that came and went that was involved with Tully. So Tully was in his corner sometimes, right? <laughs> and and they refer to that, that he used to have a horseman. Well, now you got another horseman, and in comes Arn Anderson. It is the first time we've seen Arn in, what, a year? Since Cody left. Since Cody left, I think. So over, but he's still there, apparently. Or come back. And Arn Does his son still work there? Wasn't his son wrestling there too? He wrestled there once or twice. That was over a year ago. Uh, nevertheless, Arn basically said Tully taught Wardlow how to play checkers and they're going to start playing chess. So now Arn's going to be in Wardlow's corner tonight against Hobbs. So already in the Battle of Corner Men, I think Arn outranks QT Marshall. This is two, week, more, two weeks in a row where Cody Rhodes is 
featured in one way. They're mentioned or shown on this show. Isn't that weird? Well, and maybe they're trying to entice him back. Well, that's for, not going to happen. Who else <laughs> shows up also, I think, was a friend of Cody's or was in Cody's group. What? Never the, we, we don't want to. We don't want to spoil the surprise. So the next thing out in the ring was Kenny and the Buckaroos. And they ruined Kansas. And then they get in the ring. Here's not only the EVPs, but their top main event wrestlers. And they look more bummish or bummified or reeking of bummery. Then the other three did when they got in the ring, sloppy fucking street clothes, shorts, tennis shoes, no socks, hole in the fucking pants. And twinkle toes speaks and the whole arena goes to sleep, even though he's trying to be serious. I know, but there's no, there's no fire. There's no oomph there. There's no passion. He doesn't believe, maybe he doesn't have a personality. I've heard that that may be the case, but there's no, charisma in him when he speaks um but he talked about all the things that the bbc had done to you know him and the buckaroos and then brian danielson suddenly appears on the screen calling them all amateurs and while they're looking at him on the screen calling them amateurs the rest of the bbc jump in on the evps from behind and they have a big fight in the in the ringside and they in the arena they do everything that the girls just did 15 minutes beforehand and but this went on for much longer and i mean it was again it's every indie wrestler's wet dream to be involved in something like this where it's actually on tv and people can see it where they're doing all kinds of cool brawling that looks like shit when you focus. It's, it's a lot of meaningless sound and motion, but if you focus on any one single thing that's being done instead of the whole picture, it all looks like shit. makes no sense. At one point, Wheeler Useless took a Northern Lights suplex on the floor and was up throwing punches seconds later. Yeah, and Moxley would go down for things, but he'd come right back up. It's not like he sold anything. I sell nothing. I'm invincible. <laughs> and the, and then as the BBC is, you know, finally is in firm control, Danielson comes out with the microphone and cuts a promo on him or starts cutting a promo on him. I told you you were amateurs. Well, here comes Don Fallis down the entry ramp holding a chair and he gets halfway down the ramp looks at the scene gets scared drops the chair and runs back to the back so then the bbc isolate twinkle toes i guess the maddie and nikki were thrown to the floor or whatever and danielson pulls out a screwdriver and it's that they're gonna hold Twinkle toes while we are expected to believe that Brian Danielson is going to stab him with a screwdriver. But then suddenly here comes Don Fallis again with take a shit. And he sends take a shit to the ring to help out. Where's hangnail page? Hold that thought. And take a shit 
jumps in the ring and clears the ring of everybody all by himself. Brian bails out on his own. But everybody else gets sent out by this one guy. The And isn't that the hangnail page spot? Or is there trouble over in dipshit Cowboyville, Virginia? You would think that's the hangman page spot. Again, he got beat up by these uh, Blackpool folks. And they have been, for a while, from what I understand, teasing things with Don Callis and Takeshita on various programs that they produce. So it's not outrageous. That he went back and got him. Well, the whole thing was out. Someone has to do the job. (laughs) Somebody's got to get dirty. Moxley Uh, has become one of my favorites. Can I just say that? Oh, come on. If you go into it watching it, knowing this guy's the worst fucking wrestler in the world, he's quite enjoyable to watch. You know he's going to fall down at least once. You know he's going to start throwing punches that don't hit or elbows that just look bad, but he's going to like grimace like he's really doing something. I've started to enjoy the awfulness in his wrestling and the whole Blackpool combat club is just so ridiculous. And then Danielson now is like the leader of the whole thing. I get a kick out of that. I did want to ask you one other thing about this though. The fact that they're doing this feud and the way they're doing it so far between Blackpool combat club and the elite It would almost be, you know, for all the talk about doing FTR and CM Punk versus the Elite after this, kind of feels like they're blowing out the big program for the factions right now. Like It would almost be bad to do something like that right after this, right? Oh, you mean it would be bad to follow up this with FTR and Punk versus... (laughs) No, you always want to try to build and get bigger as you go along. Look... (laughs) Regardless of what they do between the BBC and the elite, it will appeal to the, they're preaching to the choir, as Jim Ross and many other Southern individuals would say. It will appeal to the people that are already going to watch it or buy it to begin with. The reason why that the natural match is The Elite versus Punk and FTR is simply because it's something that even the, not only will the smart AEW fans believe that there could be something legitimate about it, because there is and was, but also it's intriguing enough to get the people that came with Punk to come back, to get the people that might watch television but not buy a big pay-per-view to fucking do so because there's something extra to it. It's It's got its own built-in attraction. It's not just going to be aggressive parkour with bad indie wrestling and hardcore shit mixed in. So the idea that you wouldn't, if you could put, and, and the reason why FTR been grouped in this and now apparently the AEW fans are mad at some of them because they're on his side. Well, no shit. They're on the side of the big star that actually does good wrestling because they are, take pride in their wrestling. Imagine that. But they're friends, and people know that too. And if even if there is not legitimate heat that we know of between FTR and the Buckaroos, people can believe there could be. 
Because there's obviously at least professional jealousy on one part we know of for sure. So that's the reason why that's your biggest match. Instead of this convoluted indie wrestling style bullshit that they're doing with the BBC and and the Buckaroos and Twinkle Toes. That's for the people that are already there. That's fine. I'm sure they'll love it. But that doesn't mean you can't do something bigger that appeals to more people for more obvious reasons involving better talent that will give a better performance and build the thing better because they're more serious about it. So it would be an upgrade, yes. Men and women on both programs, and as we just talked about on Raw, too many factions, faction warfare everywhere. Well, that's another thing. As as much of a dearth of really top-level star power main event singles attractions that they have in this company to begin with, and they've got Danielson mixed up in this jobber stew, and as well as, you know, they want to tie Kenny and Maddie and Nikki up because that way they get to play with their friends and they get to work together and they get the cool Kansas entrance music, and at least it's putting them in one match where, you know, we don't have to fucking skip two or three different matches. So that that's fine. They've lived their usefulness in that company as box office draws to begin with, in my opinion, except for potential punk and FTR contest. But they're they're hiding Danielson in this mess, and Claudio never got a chance to really do anything. He's a great worker. He's not going to be the next Stone Cold Steve Austin. But goddamn, he just got thrown into this. Now he's mired down in the middle of it. Yeah, he's done. But l- listen, you brought up Kansas. I haven't asked you about this. The idea they're using this as their theme song and Tony's paying for it. The visual of when the song first hits and they're on the stage in a silhouette and then the song gets really big and all of a sudden we see them, that works. Then they come to the ring. <laughs> then they get in the ring. The song is still going. And they're like waiting for the next round of the chorus. And so is the audience, because the audience is silent while the young bucks are walking around singing the song to themselves. <laughs> and then the audience gets ready for the big chorus of what you may remember was a big hit song had nothing to do with wrestling. So what is Tony really paying for here? Just the moment of them on the stage? Because there's too much of them singing <laughs> the song to themselves while the crowd sits there. <laughs> it happened here, but I've seen it before, too. That's what made me think about it. What he's paying for is, you know, somebody to go through and pick out the brown M&Ms. He, just their self-indulgent fantasies now that they've found a sucker that will suffer their presence. Would Tony Khan license the Beatles for a wrestler? Well, what song? For who? It it would have to fit really good, wouldn't it? Like if they said, "Hey Tony, this would fit me really good." He'd have to be, he'd have to have his arm twisted like that. I mean, it, I I would think at some point, you know, they draw the line somewhere. He licensed the Trogs for one week. Remember that? Yes. <laughs> he got he, instead of signing the wrong one-legged wrestler, he he licensed the wrong fucking cover of the song. Yeah. But then he and then he he's given 
the thing is, it has to be his pet or somebody that he, I guess, is scared by. Because Moxley probably intimidates him. Tony, I can see Moxley, Tony being the only person on earth that Moxley could legitimately intimidate. That's right. Um, it's like the movie Cobra. I'm half Sylvester Stallone, half badass, half Cobra. <laughs> and I, But then again, Tony gave his favorite little mascot two different songs that he had to license. Yeah. So he only Good does point. it for people he either is, you know, in love with or is scared of. So somebody ought to intimidate him into some fucking skinners. We'd have something to listen to. Speaking of intimidation, it used to be that if you had an intimidating professional wrestler like a Wardlow or a Powerhouse Hobbs, boy, you just, that would be almost the easiest thing you could be handed as a booker. How, how in the world could I possibly fuck up getting this monster beast over? Well, the answer is quite simple. Just follow the Tony Khan playbook. Times two. Times two. Because first, Wardlow got over on his own, and then Tony kiboshed it by not knowing what to do about it. And then Hobbs, for a couple of weeks, three years into his employment, they finally decided to, hey, we might be able to do something with this guy. And then they put him with QT Marshall to make sure that he didn't get over. Uh, somebody please do a meme of QT's face on an albatross's body. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then now to finish everything off, Tony brings both stories into, into an intersection point and finalizes both their careers by putting them against each other to where both of them, either, both the winner and the loser look like shit. In, and I, I was afraid this was the least of my fears. It, c it come to turn out, I was afraid that this could be like a uh, the match between Bronson Reed and Bobby Lashley, where it, both power guys so big and strong it neutralizes the coolest thing about their offenses that they can overpower and throw people around and blah blah blah. Right? But that was the least of the problems here after i saw the match and the finish that they did and i i guess they didn't trust them because in this case both these guys are green at having a match especially with a guy that matches them size and size and power and power and on television but instead of trying to construct something that would again, be easy enough to do that they could pull it off at an execution level of 10 out of 10 and a bit of a story that established the baby face and the heel. I called one between Lashley and Reed. I'm not going to do it again step by step, but something along that line where you established who's the baby face and who's the heel and potentially do something early in the match that Arn Anderson prevents QT Marshall from trying to pull somebody's leg and trip him or just do something innocuous just to establish Arn's presence and gets a pop from the people that takes some of the burden off of the participants from having to just go back and forth 
instead of building any of this and making sure because they can't go long enough to have an epic that this is a match you should not go to break in, start it out, tell the story, get to the payoff, boom. They didn't do any of those things. At the start of the match, Powerhouse Hobbs gave Wardlow three belly-to-belly suplexes. It was you, make, his, you make it sound better than it looked. But no, but that was his first offense. I mean, they were... Somebody's going to say, well, they were sloppy because he was so big. Well, the point is, how, why or how, if you have a giant fighting a giant, do you establish first thing that one, either of the giants can pick the other one up and throw him to the ground effortlessly three times in a row? And the fact that the person thrown three times in a row didn't sell it made it even worse. It, it, and then they rolled out to the floor. And they had a fight on the floor and over the rail and went into the arena and they were doing the walk fighting like Brody and uh, Abdullah the Butcher in Japan. Because I'm sure they've all watched those goddamn... Instead of their Mid-South wrestling, they're watching Japanese uh, highlights. And within a minute, they went to the break. But I was so curious because... Both these guys could be attractions in their own way, if not for the mismanagement that they've undergone. I think it may be, at this point, we may just close the book on both of them. But I watched in the picture-in-picture. Picture, they were on the floor from the time they left before we went to the break until the time they were both back in the ring, two minutes and 30 seconds. For the people in the building, they just either wallowed around, laid and sold, or fought on the floor with the referee just following him around for two and a half minutes. The visual had to be ridiculous to the people in the building. And they didn't even try to have a match. They just did that. And when they came back, they were in the ring, which was worse because they started out with goddamn belly-to-belly overhead suplexes, and now they're just in the fucking ring. They've gone all around the arena. They're, they're, they've started fucking by coming and ended up kissing each other on the cheek. Which one's the baby face, which is the heel? Well, powerhouse Hobbs makes mean faces, but as far as the style of work or the moves that they did to each other, there was no difference. They did a sloppy yay boo with clotheslines that didn't do either guy any favors. Then going into a, the finish, they started trying to do drop behinds and reversals. And working with back and forth stuff like they were 200 pounds apiece, which is horrible. And no, no. Yes, Wardlow can do his, his swanton or whatever, but there, there should be scoop slam drop behind. Oh, duck this. Get this fucking reverse the arm. What the fuck are you people doing? And there's no training program apparently or are they not listening are there no prisons no workhouses i ask again nevertheless so then finally wardlow just decks hobbs some kind of way and the girl gets up on the apron and starts doing the fucking cartoonish enticing thing where did they <laughs> where did they get this woman from 
Has she ever even seen television? It was so stagey acting. She lifting up her tanned leg in her short skirt and she's doing the enticing thing. And of course, apparently Wardlow's fucking never seen a woman before because he's fighting this goddamn giant fucking <laughs> California gang, street gang member, whatever the fuck Hobbs's background is supposed to be. And he's just standing there transfixed by her leg. Hey, I can give you five different sites you can see more than her leg and somebody won't be fucking beating you in the face while you're doing it. Unless you're Tony Atlas, in which case make it six sites, but nevertheless. So then Arn gets up on the apron and starts staring at the girl also. He's supposed to be playing chess, but he looks like he'd rather be playing sticky finger. And then he starts showing some leg. And then, yes, and then when he raised his leg, but no, but he's, why was it, he should have, if it was Arn Anderson, the enforcer, he should have jerked her off the apron of the ring and carried her to the back, right? But instead he's standing there, so the referee is staring at Arn, staring at the girl on the apron, while QT rolls in and gives Wardlow a cutie cutter, I guess, is what it is. Hey, you forgot ineffective babyface manager Arn Anderson. That was well, what that, the first run was. That's what I'm saying. Why would you have Arn standing there staring slack-jawed at this douchebag while the referee stares slack-jawed at Arn while everybody's staring slack-jawed? The, Arn Anderson, the enforcer, is, is helping distract the referee while QT rolls in on the other side and gives Hobbs a cutie cutter, as I said. And and then rolls out, and Arn does nothing about the girl, gets down, girl gets down, referee turns around, and Hobbs hits a spine buster and gets a two count. And then QT rolls back into the ring and gets in the referee's face, arguing that it should have been a three count. That's a DQ! As a manager, I've done that finish in the past. The referee turns around, sees the manager in the ring. That's a disqualification. Has been since the dawn of recorded wrestling time. But no, now the referee's arguing with QT in the ring. So now Arn comes in. And the referee stands and looks at both of them. There's no DQ, no disqualification of anybody. And Arn confronts QT. And then pulls an invisible gun out of his tracksuit points his finger at QT, and QT shits his pants and jumps out of the ring. Yes, at the finger gun. At the finger gun. And this is a guy who's, it's been, I'm not saying he is, is a successful one, but he's been presented as a professional wrestler. He just bailed out of the ring in fear of a finger gun. But then as he's in the alleyway behind him, for whatever reason, comes Penthouse and his interpreter, Alex, who superkick QT, and instead of going down... And again, why? Why? (laughs) And instead of going down from the superkick... QT spins around and walks to the ring and staggers and rolls into the ring and stands up so that Arn can DDT him. 
And the referee is seeing all of this. The DDT was amazing. If you noticed it, Arn hits him with the DDT and then they both sell it the same way. As soon as QT and Arn hit the mat, they both just immediately roll out of the ring at yes. the exact same time. So QT doesn't sell it. He just rolls just like Arn they did. were supposed to. Because because but remember, there's still a match going on. For the TNT, what is this fucking thing? The TNT, TNT title. TNT title, it's a title match. There's still a match going on after we've had the girl and Arn with the finger gun and QT and Penthouse and Alex came out for moral support with Penthouse. Maybe they were handcuffed together. Maybe that's where they got the handcuffs later. Anyway, after all this has gone on right in front of the referee, then Hobbs and fucking Wardlow start wrestling again. And the first thing Hobbs does is schoolboy Wardlow for a two count. Hobbs using a schoolboy. And then Hobbs stands up after that two count where he was in control. He stands up, turns around, and runs at Wardlow and puts his hands on Wardlow's shoulders and just on his own volition vaults up into Wardlow's arms so Wardlow can powerbomb him. Out of the blue, he schoolboys him, stands up, runs at him, vaults up into his arms, and gets powerbombed. And then, to make sure that Powerhouse Hobbs never draws a dime in this business, never draws 15 cents in Chinese money, Never draws money if you dipped him in glue and drug him through Fort Knox. Cannot draw any money if you gave him paper and green crayons. Wardlow then power bombs him a second time and then leads the fans in singing the ah for the power bomb symphony and then power bombs Hobbs a third time and beats him flat in the middle of the ring. Well, he pinned him the way Rhea Ripley pins one of the small women where she bends her in half almost like she's fucking her. Yes. It, w it wasn't exactly that way now that I think about it, but it was a dominating pin over Hobbs. Well, at that point, I mean, the cause was lost anyway. Hobbs was dead. Call the time of death. He should have pissed in his mouth while he was down there. That's the only other thing he could have done. A rotten match with a ridiculous finish. Hobbs is done as an attraction. He never got a chance. And the bad thing is, they put a belt on him and somehow made it made him more meaningless after he won the title than he was before he did because of the way that they put it on him and then they take it off of him in three weeks because it's the other guy's hometown. You know, the only guy, it's crazy to say this, the only guy that did it right with the TNT title was Miro. He had a run where he beat people. He was a monster. And then he lost it. We never saw him again. And he started. No, we did see him because he had those vignettes where he was fighting with God in like a white room. Yes. He was he was mad at God for the longest time. And apparently God won. <laughs> He's never come back. We've never seen him again. He was smited. But they've now this TNT title just trades back and forth like it's the USWA. No, no, I, I beg to differ. You caught me in mid sip there. But I beg to differ because the guys trading the belts back in the, and forth in the USWA, they were over first before they got in the title match. Hopefully this is the end of Hobbs with QT. This QT stuff. It's the end of Hobbs. Why? 
the best thing they could do if he wants to be a wrestler at this point for a career is give him his release and let him go to a quality, if he can find one, quality training program. Maybe call up Mike Mondo and get some quality training in the psychology of a wrestling match and how to work as a fucking powerhouse. And then, if I was him, I would do everything I could to get a tryout for NXT while he's still young enough and can do this and and is not, unfortunately, learning any more bad habits. Like, if they sold this to him as somehow this was acceptable for his career the thing with qt and the miscellaneous woman the put the belt on him and take it off of him the wait three years to do anything with this fucking guy to begin with and then he gets a three-week doom to failure opportunity and then you beat him like this with Wardlow, who they botched everything with, and now when you hear him do a promo, it's like listening to Bob Backlund. Just he's so, oh, it's so nice to be here and everything. Well, and see, but the thing is, when he got so, when Wardlow, too many pronouns, when Wardlow got so over with the audience, they they knew before we knew that he couldn't fucking talk. They should have never let him start talking. Giving, it, well, I was going to say giving him a mouthpiece isn't the worst thing, even though he's now been exposed a little bit, but no, no, not even a mouthpiece. If I'm saying he was popular, he should have been switched babyface. He was switched in a manner of speaking babyface. But in, then he got, remember, he got in a feud with a fake lawyer and goddamn 20 miscellaneous fake security guards. That's right. That was the first thing he did after he won the title. He was ready-made. Get him in something interesting with a fucking slimy heel, and the heel has a friend, and one or both of them can talk, and you wouldn't have goddamn needed. You would have had a two-on-one situation in a lot of cases, which <clears throat> would have kept his explosiveness and given him a reason to sell. You could hear from him very seldom and only a fucking shouted sentence or two at a time that would have you fed him ahead of time that would have kept up his man a few words intensity and, he, and he'd be power bombing job guys on tv every week or two well where i was going was if you're going to give him a mouthpiece right now which i think he needs more than doing any promos by himself or you just have him do no promos obviously to use arn anderson here no disrespect to arn because i've always been an arn fan and he could still talk obviously but based on everything we've seen since the start of aew and no disrespect to you although in a sense i feel the same way should we be seeing 60-plus-year-old managers who really can't do what managers do, let alone no. babyface ones at ringside who are going to be completely ineffective? No, no. And that's, uh, that's uh, another point is that Arn didn't do anything before. They didn't have him. They didn't instruct him to do anything or give him anything really meaty to do. But at the same time, being in a babyface's corner, the only reason you should be in a babyface's corner is to counteract someone in the heel corner. And if you are to the point where, except in extreme cases, of and depending on what the big name is, there could be an exception to this rule, but if you're not capable as the, the person in the babyface corner of either getting a shit kicked out of you when the time comes and it's right, or 
kicking the shit out of the other guy, at least strategically at the big moment when it's called for, you shouldn't be there. And I could understand doing a thing where he trains with Arn or he gets pointers from Arn. But Arn shouldn't be in his corner full time because, and then you've got, again, you don't want someone necessarily to talk for a baby face unless the baby face is gimmick because he doesn't speak the language or he doesn't speak really at all. But you don't want somebody talking for the baby face. You want the baby face to speak for himself. You want somebody speaking potentially for a heel. It just, it, and Tully. Tully did nothing for FTR. Tully did nothing. And and he did nothing. And but physically, again, he had the he had a match. He didn't do too bad considering. But he was in his sixties. But Tully had been not doing interviews for thirty fucking years. He didn't really. Did you remember? You remember great Tully Blanchard interviews from the eighties, but not from two years ago. That's right. So it, no, and that's again. That's why I've said before. I've. You know, I don't want to manage anybody right now, but I can't if I did. Because I ain't going to take any fucking bumps. And that's part of it. Anyway, both these guys, Brian, at one point, their futures were so bright, they ought to have been wearing shades. But right now, they're wearing shrouds because their futures are looking very, very dim. Well, but let's folks, tell everyone about Shroudy Ray. Well, if... Let me just say this. If you don't work for Tony Khan, then your future could be brighter than Wardlow's and Hobbs, and you would still need the shades instead of the shrouds. And that's where Shady Rays come in, because, you know, you could put Shady Rays on a shroud on a corpse, and then it would look like Weekend at Bernie's. So I don't know where we can go any further with that. But Shady Rays... Well, that's, I guess some people, if you have kind of a wild life, maybe at the funeral, you... Be buried with your favorite sunglasses. That's not outrageous. Or I would thought you were going to say everybody should wear sunglasses to the funeral, so you can't really tell whether they're upset or not. Was Just Ray takes... Charles buried in his glasses? I don't know. What about Stevie Wonder? He's alive. Well, and that would be disturbing if he'd been buried with sunglasses. And some people think he's not really blind. Oh, come on now. He couldn't work for 60 years straight. But folks, you're wondering what this all has to do with Shady Rays, and so am I. <laughs> and that's why I'm going to get back to this, because Shady Rays are people. It's a company, actually, but it's composed of people, because companies are just people, too. That makes high-quality sunglasses that are just as gall-darn good, or in my opinion, and others as well, even better than the expensive ones, and at a fraction of the price. They're durable. They're stylish, they're, t they're timeless, they're on point. They're all of these things. And the best part about them is you can't break them. I don't know why you'd want to try to just break your Shady Rays, but if you do break them, then they'll replace them. Because they're not only durable, but they're fair to you. And if you lose the pair, if you lose the pair and you can't spare another pair because you've lost them, they will replace them. So they even make up for your incompetence. And I think that's a lot to ask for somebody. A, a company of Shady Ray's eminent qualifications to have to make up for your incompetence for your and shadiness. irresponsibility. For your shadiness. They're 
for your shadiness. They're raised for the shady. Here's another thing. They give you 30 days to try them out, and if you don't like them, you can exchange them or return them for free. So now let's get this straight. Here, first of all, you've got you've got sunglasses that are durable. They're almost unbreakable. But if you do break them, they'll replace them for you for free. And if you lose them, even through your own stupidity or carelessness or childishness, they'll replace them for free. And if you don't like them after 30 days, they'll change them or return your money for free. And I know what you're saying. Now you're saying, how in the world are these people still in business? I'm wondering the same thing because they're way too honest and fair. But even further, Brian, right now for a limited time only, you can buy one pair of Shady Rays and get a second pair free. And then if you break or lose both of those, why then, my God, by extrapolating that down the line, somebody out there could potentially get 745,000 pairs of Shady Rays for the price of one. I'm pretty sure they would put their foot down and change the policy before things got that out of hand. Well, if you only want 177,000 pairs of Shady Rays for the price of one, folks, act now. Go to ShadyRays.com. That's S-H-A-D-Y-R-A-Y-S.com slash J-C-E. Use the code J-C-E. And as we said, for a limited time, you buy one pair of Shady Rays, you're going to get a second pair for free. And that way you can protect yourself from being out in the sunny places. If if it's bright sunshine and people are able to get a good look at you, well, put these sunglasses on and then you'll you'll be impervious. They won't be able to see you. ShadyRays.com slash JCE, code JCE. Get a second pair of Shady Rays free. They'll replace them for free if you break them. They'll replace them if you lose them. Hell, they might just send you five or six pairs just because they're not paying attention. They won't do that. They're just free with these things. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been out in bright sunlight and you said, well, I'm too visible. So you put those sunglasses on and instantly people can't see you. Well, I never thought of it that way, but I will try that with my new Shady Rays. The Shady Rays, they bend the light all around you. What? Yeah, you can just slip right into a, a light a light groove. And the light bends around. That's how they make people invisible. They bend light around you. Who's they? Well, the, the scientists. The scientists bend light around you. That makes you invisible. If, if something doesn't reflect light, then it can't be seen. So if you just bend the light around the person or thing, then it becomes invisible. That's what shady rays do for you. Hmm. Shady rays. All right, well, speaking of shady people, let's go to Shady Sammy Guevara in the back with Rene Moxley Good. And MJF comes in and makes a deal with Sammy. Brian, can you articulate, based on this interview, the deal that was made? I watched this live last night, and my intention after it was to sit back and let you explain it, and then I would jump in with my thoughts because you would clarify what I saw. <laughs> I can't really. Renee's about to do the interview with Sammy, who is baby, both babyface and heel at this point. MJF comes in and he says, 
in exchange, eventually in exchange for a check that you could write any figure you want on, a blank check, you have to go and win the match tonight? Was that it? Well, no, <laughs> not well as part of it. But basically, MJF comes in and pitches Sammy should be in the main event of Double or Nothing in the world title match against me. And all you got to do is lay down. And then, ah, oh, Sammy says, I knew there was something. Uh, but the way that they did it, they glossed over that point with the surprise pop of Sammy going, I knew there was a catch to it. And then MJF comes in, but no, no, there's a check also. They never articulated the deal that well, but apparently the story is that MJF will use his influence to try to make sure that it's Sammy Guevara challenging him for the title at double or nothing in the main event and give him the blank check on the theory that Sammy will then lay down for him in the title match. But first, Sammy has to not only beat Jungle Jack tonight, but then he has to go on and next week or whenever that match is, he will have to beat Darby Allen. And then he can be in the main event of the pay-per-view challenging for the title against MJF and get the blank check as long as he lays down and I guess they do the one finger poke of doom or whatever is the story they're trying to tell because why would, why would he fight him and then lay down for him? So that's <laughs> apparently they're trying to make the fans think, Oh my God, MJF is going to give us a fucking fake match. I, I, I don't know. To my earlier point, this felt like a raw backstage segment more than anything we've seen on AEW, really. So again, Sammy and MJF are now going to be friends because the idea is Sammy is going to get into that title match and get all these wonderful benefits by laying down. I guess that's how you set up the four-way if you're going to still do it, right? Is the idea that oh, please, no, some at least figure comes out there after he beats Darby and says, this is ridiculous, you guys have already said your attention is for him to lay down for the finger poke of doom. We're not going to have it for a No, 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 no. For God's sake, no. It needs to be Darby against MJF. Darby needs to beat Sammy. But then Sammy will be mad and probably cost Darby the match. But at least we'll get a single match that we can watch instead of a four-way that I'll just fucking skip. So what do you do with Jungle Boy and Sammy on the pay-per-view? Well, again, Sammy would be involved in terms of screwing Darby out of his his opportunity and jungle boy can, I don't know. Do they have enough people selling popcorn? Do they need somebody in the parking lot? Security, whatever. I don't care. With the amount of references that have been made on TV now to Sammy's role as Jericho's flunky in character, the guy to, as he said, take the bumps. I mean, he said that on the promo last time. Do you see this as a way to break him away from Jericho and use him with MJF, or at least in that picture with MJF? Well, it, it doesn't have to be aligned with MJF to have interaction with him. I'm not saying line him up with him like they've suddenly become friends. If the heels use each other from time to time, but it could be used to get Sammy out of the group and make him a single attraction, because if Darby Allen challenges for the world title and loses, even if it's not direct intervention and just a cheap, 
unimaginative finish, but something that Sammy does creates a handicap or a stumbling block or whatever at the appropriate time that MJF capitalizes on, whatever the case, then you've got a natural Darby versus Sammy return match out of that, which can be a program, well, who might get a title rematch? Well, Sammy still wants that, blah, blah, blah. But that would make sense and stuff. Uh, But anyway, we were at the top of the 9 o'clock hour, folks. That's where, if people are flipping by, and maybe if I stall long enough, we'll get the ratings. It's still so early in the day, I don't know if we'll get that. But where you think people are flipping by or changing channel or ending a previous program, you want to put the star power out. We talk about the top of the hour on Raw or SmackDown every week. Well, the top of the hour at 9 o'clock, that they decided to show us was Jay Switchblade White versus Commander. And an unknown guy that's only just debuted in the company, what, two weeks ago or whatever, last week, against, a, for all intents and visual purposes, a Mexican mini. I don't know if this guy is Russian, Hispanic, Chinese, or Indonesian. But he's dressed like a luchador, and he's five foot three and weigh, and is introduced at 160 pounds. And Jay White, again, I watched this match because I wanted to see what all the fuss is about. Everybody, Jay White, Jay White. It was a big deal to a lot of the AEW fans. They signed him. So I'm okay. It was a great idea for him to sell for this guy for the whole fucking match. Well, that's what I wanted to, okay, here's the first match that this new star that they've signed, this hot free agent, so what makes him a star? What, what do I, what am I supposed to care about? What does he do? How does he conduct himself? Whatever. Well, what I saw was a guy getting his ass kicked by a kid in a mask, or sometimes he turned into a guy standing around waiting to catch a cheerleader in a vaulting routine. He's in shape, Jay White, I'm talking about. He looks athletic. He's got a nice visual look. His his wrestling, his shit didn't look bad. His offense, what he, but every every time he had to cooperate with the aggressive parkour or the fact that for the majority of this match, I was watching this dwarf kick the shit out of this guy. There was nothing done to get Jay White over as a star here or to even tell you that he was supposed to be a star, except the announcers saying it while he was getting his ass kicked by an unknown midget. And the big spot in the match (laughs) they built to was the jobber doing the tightrope walk. (laughs) What what am I talking about? (laughs) Just the way you run through it, just, uh, it's amazing. He got... (laughs) Commander got two big false finishes, two big two counts, then got a submission hold on him the like a standing octopus, and then, okay, it's time to go home. Jay White just grabbed him and hit what I assume is his finish twice. Hit him with it once, pick him up, hit him with it again, and pinned him by the skin of his teeth. And what the fuck kind of debut 
Is that for a, a guy that's allegedly going to be okay? I can see him now, you know, being competitive with El Fuego del Sol or, you know, any of the other guys they have on the roster that are 150 pounds or less. Well, except for Darby Allen, Darby Allen probably kicked the shit out of this guy. Cause what the, f- what in the world kind of debut is? And then Juice Robinson's in his corner. And somehow, here's a name from the distant past, Sean Spears is shown numerous times in the front row watching this match for what reason I'm still in the dark about. And they just go out and pull Sean Spears over the rail and and the heels beat him up barely until here comes Ricky Starks and he hits and makes the save. So the Bullet Club... Jay White and Juice Robinson, they debut together. Jay White has a match. He barely beats a dwarf. He does an angle with Sean Spears, and then they get run off by one fucking guy. This guy looks like a fucking threat to any championship to me. What about you, Brian? We saw Commander, I think, last week, because we saw a lot of these tightrope act. I remember you and I talking about it. We saw a lot of this stuff. And on its own, in a vacuum in a fucking big top, whatever, it's impressive. But when you've seen it now two weeks in a row, and you can tell this guy needs to get his balance, and he's... The, the one spot, I mean, now people have isolated it, where he has Jay White's arm, and he's just jumping from the middle rope to the top rope to the middle yes. rope to the top rope. Yes. Why doesn't Jay White yank this motherfucker off the rope? Jay White just stands there and lets this happen. Jay White could have yanked him at any time. He's standing there transfixed by the scene unfolding in front of him, forgetting that the guy's got a hold of his fucking arm. I thought when this match started, because we saw Commander and we saw what his routine is last week, what an interesting way Tony's going to get Jay White over on his debut here. He's coming out there. Oh, he has Juice Robinson with him. All right, even better. This Moondog is going to cheat to help the heel beat the really small guy. Okay, that works. They established who he was last week. They just have to screw him out of one of those tightrope spots and... People will start booing, and then you beat him. And then he got competitive. Not even competitive. Jay White sold the whole match as a heel. I think he's a heel. As a heel, with another heel at ringside in his corner, he just let this guy run circles around him until the very end. Sean Spears and uh, Juice Robinson. Again, I don't know. They bring in people in the weirdest ways. They bring in people and then immediately mix them with at least I think the wrong people to get the audience what? interested in. I don't know what they're doing with this. Who are we pushing? Is a common thing that I would scream back in the Ring of Honor days, and it's gotten worse. You know what's crazy? This show has not been very good, and that is another gardener going in the background, a whole unique, different crew. But up until this point, this is how the booking has treated them. I hadn't even thought about Ricky Starks. Where's Ricky Starks? When's he going to come out there? Surprised me when his music hit. Oh, shit. Ricky Starks works here. (laughs) Well, he got beat up last week. But see how many people got beat up last week. People get beat up in every Every segment. segment. Yeah. On this episode, especially. Well, speaking of which, um, here's another ball that was dropped. Uh, remember when Mark Briscoe could have been pushed to the moon and would have 
easily been bought by the AEW fans as a top singles guy and would have been the most popular guy in a promotion if it was uh, every week something was done right after the initial thing. And that's all been, all that momentum has been lost. And FTR is standing there. They've just signed a new contract, apparently. And I, I guess they, you know, hey, it's great to be able to spend time at home with the family. That's what they've got here. And they're in the back with Renee Moxley-Good. And she <laughs> not only tells them this information, but then says, well, here, watch it on this screen right behind me. And they show a VTR of Mark Briscoe being attacked earlier in the day. And this is the first FTR has heard about it, and they're shocked, and they run off 30 feet to the fucking trainer's room where there's Mark being worked on by the doctors. So apparently they had their Raycon wireless earbuds in. I wish Raycon was on the program today. What a transition. And by the way, Mark seemed fine. Mark seemed fine. He was sitting there <laughs> sitting up. Not a, no bandages, not any blood. He said, I'm okay. I'm ready to go. But the doctor or whoever is saying, no, no, you can't. And here's where it got complicated because now there is Mark Briscoe sitting there with the trainer or the doctor, whoever. Jay Lethal, Sanjay Dutt, Jeff Jarrett, and Zippy the Giant Pinhead are in the room. And then there's FTR on the other side of the room. And Mark says he's fine, but the doctor won't let him wrestle. So Mark wants FTR to team with Jarrett and Lethal. And I wrote, what is happening? And we found out this is a match that's going to be on Rampage. Not even in this program. Not even the normal Rampage day. But but besides that, even if Mark ain't okay right now, he might be okay by Friday or Saturday. But there's, And because Mark is out, he wants these two guys to take his place, teaming with Jeff Jarrett and Lethal in what we now understand is an eight-man tag well who was going to be the third partner on mark briscoe's side anyway and why was mark briscoe teaming with heels like jeff jarrett and jay lethal and what the fuck is going on i have no answers for you other than uh the gardener that's here now is my gardener it's julio and the boys Okay. So I apologize. It's going to get loud, but I don't know. Are, are they going to go down by the schoolyard? You know, we talk about MJF needing people to work with. You're right. There's a period of time that, not that Mark Briscoe wouldn't work in the future, but should have slotted him in there right then and there when they needed someone. Now he's mixed in with the bad comedy of Jay Lethal. And, I, and I'm sorry to say it, but Jay Lethal, Jeff Jarrett, and that crew, Sanjay and the Giant. Maybe yeah. if they weren't there, it wouldn't be so silly. And now FTR's mixed in with that. So I don't know. Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal without Zippy and Sanjay uh, and and just a, a presentation could be the it would be the best in work in ring working tag team heel team in AEW and would be a great match with FTR but with all of this falderall and I don't know what the fuck Well next up was the long awaited First time ever face-off between Chris Jericho and Adam Cole. Who's longly awaited it, you might say? Probably Jericho. He's been anxious to sap some of that good Adam Cole fucking adrenochrome. I mean, they, they got in a... And this was 
I will say probably the most WWE style thing. They got in the ring, both of them with microphones and Adam Cole, always a fan of Jericho, always had respect for him. They shook hands and then Jericho says, well, I've got zero respect for you. I think you're an arrogant son of a bitch. And then Adam Cole says, Chris is a jag off, an insecure, stupid idiot. And Jericho tells him off and says, get out of my ring. And Adam says, what you going to do about it? And Jericho shoves him and Adam Cole gets on him. And then here we go. And I went through all of that because with this, it wasn't really important what they said. And they did a fine job of what they were doing to set up their argument. Adam Cole's very well-spoken. But here is where they had the idea, the concept of an angle to do that you know, maybe, I don't know, Jericho's old enough, he's been around, it's probably been done, that's why maybe he pitched it. He just didn't pay good close attention or there's no quality control to under to ensure that everybody else involved in it understood what the fuck to do or what was going on. That sometimes happens that these guys these days, or Tony as a, a booker with ADD, takes a moment or a thing they remember and and think they know the whole setup to execution of and fall out from a particular kind of angle. In this case, what they wanted to do was a variation on the old, we're going to make the baby face watch as we hurt or punish someone dear to him angle, right? And I mean, that's as old as wrestling. And it it was a, a the, the flavor of that angle was something that Dusty do, Watts would do. Uh, fucking, I've seen it in Tennessee. It's an old time territory angle. And it has many multiple variations because it depends on who's involved. The only thing you really need, the thing you most need, is you have to have a top baby face with an affiliation with, a relationship with someone weaker, lower on the card, younger, more sympathetic, and that's the person that is punished to get at that top baby face. Whether it is a protege, whether it's a child, or a younger brother, or or even just, you know, a, a young protege they've taken under the wing, whatever the case. I remember Chief Thundercloud and Danny Little Bear, when they were a team, they were a team for a couple of years. They did this, I think, in Nick's end and, and tennis and Memphis end also. Chief Thundercloud, one of his sons was their drummer boy. Actually, I think he had two sons at various times. One or the other, both of them did it, Chewy and Chato. But anyway, the heels, in this case, I think it was Dutch Mantel and David Schultz, attack and beat up this 15-year-old drummer boy. He's the one that accompanied him to the ring. They were baby faces, but when they'd get in trouble, he would beat on the drum and the fans would make noise and that would spur the Indian to get up and make a comeback. Or, I mean, we stole it uh, and upgraded it, updated it in Smoky Mountain 30 years ago with Jake the Snake and Dirty White Boy. Everybody in Knoxville knew that the dirty white boy and the dirty white girl, Kim, who had been involved with continental wrestling and on programs for years, they were married for real. 
together, a couple. So Tony Anthony gets handcuffed to the top rope and Jake the Snake DDTs dirty white girl right in the middle of the ring right in front of him. He can't do anything about it. And then, of course, Jake no-shows and he never did do anything about it. Poor white girl went unavenged. But uh, but th so that angle is old and has been done in every territory uh, over the period of time. They had that idea. The problem was in the execution and because they made it complicated and because, again, I know everybody knows Adam Cole and Britt Baker are together, but unless, and you have the rule that a man can't do something to a woman, especially with a kendo stick, but if you have that, then this was not the place to do this particular angle because what they did was when, when Jericho gets in a fight, with Cole, Garcia comes in and they start beating up Adam Cole. And then Britt Baker comes in and pulls Jericho off of Adam Cole and slaps him in the face. And now at that point, if they wanted to do this angle, then honestly, fuck the kendo stick. Jericho should have just put the goddamn walls of Jericho on Britt. Because to oh, they be could have honest, never done that. Well, but think about this. How many Boston crabs have ever been used in a domestic dispute? You're not punching her. You're not hitting her. Scoop the ankles, turn her over, and put a Boston crab on her. Explain to me how the tech... You can't say it without smiling and laughing. I hear it in your voice but right I now. Say, well, I'm, I'm... What would the network say? My advocation is don't do this angle then. But if they'd have had Jericho put her in the Boston Crab, that may have been one thing. But nevertheless, here's what happened. Why not hit her with the Judas while he's at it? Well, no, but see, that's a strike. A, a, a scoop why. slam. A scoop slam on a... How many times do you have a full scoop slam in a fucking domestic dispute? And I've always thought the turning over the knee and spanking if it was a heel girl, but that wouldn't have worked here. But nevertheless, what they did was as soon as Britt slaps Jericho... Soraya, Tony Storm, and Ruby Soso come out from underneath the ring and attack Brit. And they're the ones that then beat Brit. So now he's mixed what's allegedly a top angle, Jericho and Cole, in with the fucking girls program. And besides that, the execution of this, what I'm about to say next, did you see how they handcuffed Adam Cole to the bottom rope? And have you ever seen that? Was like, he actually handcuffed? Because it looked to me like he was holding the rope that he could have gotten up at any time. Was he handcuffed? No, no, he was holding the rope because he had no choice because they didn't, they handcuffed him literally to the rope. They had, and those were not handcuffs, those were leg shackles. Oh. And the, well, the reason you can tell the difference is because handcuffs have, a police issue handcuffs have either two or three lengths of chain in between the cuffs or elsewise, they don't have any chain. They're those stiff kind that join together and you can't work with those at all. You can't move in those. Your, hand, your hands can't turn. You can't use those for working purposes in wrestling at all. The handcuffs that have two or three lengths of chain in between them are a little awkward, but those are regular police issue handcuffs and you can work with them. But the leg shackles have that 
foot or 18 inches, well, probably a foot of chain in between them because you have to walk with those, right? That's why you never find handcuffs that have that much chain in between them. Those are leg shackles. That's first of all. Second of all, what he did was he put Adam Cole's wrist right next to the rope and put one end of the cuffs around both the wrist and the rope. So effectively, Adam Cole was handcuffed to that bottom rope to the point where his hand was in a place where all he could do was fucking hold onto the rope. And that's... Okay, imagine this. When you're going to handcuff somebody to the... Say, handcuff so-and-so to the top rope so that we can do this angle. Well, unless you specifically tell the guy and show the guy how to do it, chances are they're going to fuck it up if they've never done it before or never been told how to do it right. I've seen... If somebody take a pair of handcuffs and handcuff one cuff around the wrist, right? And then handcuff the other cuff to the top rope or to one of the ropes. Well, that doesn't work because then the guy can walk the full length of the ring up and down in front of the rope. See what I'm saying? You can slide the handcuff down the rope. And so he still can't get to the middle of the ring but it's a bad visual because he's not restrained in a specific area. He has too much freedom of movement for the visual you're giving the people to be that he's confined. This, the way that they did it, Cole was down on his knees at the bottom rope and couldn't really move at all, which is too much confinement. And you can't, visually give the people the dog at the end of its leash that you want in this. What you want is you want one cuff around the wrist and the other cuff on the top turnbuckle in between the turnbuckle pad and the ring post. Because now, effectively, the guy is immobilized in one six-foot square area but he's got room to panic and freak out and show the people that he's confined. If he, he can't go over the top rope because then he's on the apron. And that doesn't help him. He can't get down to the floor because he doesn't have enough slack. But if he gets in, if he's in the ring, then he can have one arm out, outstretched from the, from the top turnbuckle and the other arm reaching into the middle of the ring like oh my god i can't reach to do anything and he can pull and tug but the the turnbuckle won't come out and he can try to lean back and throw kicks out to the middle of the ring at the heels that can taunt him because they're a foot away and he can't reach and they see how much slack he's got and the whole building does too do you see where i'm going with this Th that makes it jeopardy and urgency the guy has all this room to try and portray that he can't get away, and there's a specific line that he can't cross that the heels stay right beyond and taunt him. And then, that's just the people involved in this, right? That, that we're talking about. The guy that's handcuffed, the, the weak the person that's dear to them, that's down in the, in the middle of the ring, and the heels that are beating the shit out of that person. But here's another thing that made this WWE, and it was the pace of a glacier. Nobody was coming out. Nobody was trying to help. Um, where was Jeremy, Jeremy Hader? Well, yeah, yeah. Where was Jamie Hader? Where was anybody? Where they've established they've got 
25 security guards at any point. They've got multiple referees. Britt Baker has Jamie Hayter. Even uh, uh, ring crew people, somebody from the crowd, that's the point. The picture that they created, the visual, was lacking. Even if they did one part of the song, the guitar part, they still needed drums and a bass and the fucking synthesizer, whatever. So when Jericho hands Soraya the kendo stick and she's wearing Britt Baker out, Yes, Adam Cole was freaking out because he couldn't get there, but he was in that confined, squatted space. And then, you know, and the thing is, when the guy's allowed to be on his feet, handcuffed to the top rope, then you can go in and kick him and put him back down on his knees, and he can sell, but then he can get up, but he can't reach, and blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, nobody was coming out. And I'm in the territory days, yes, it was easier. I will give them that, because... The fans knew there was only eight other baby faces in the building, or they knew there's only two referees for the night, or the promotion didn't have its own security. They used uniformed police officers that didn't get in the ring unless one of the fans did, and the fans had seen that, and they knew that. But it, it, at this point, somebody, Hater, if Hater could have run out, there's three girls in the ring, plus there's the Jericho heels. One of the girls wipes Hater out, plays King of the Hill. But maybe also, you bring a couple of referees out. And they're trying to help, and they're trying to get around the guy that's handcuffed. But the fuck, there's a kendo stick in the ring. One of the heels takes kendo stick and is reaching over the, the top rope and smacking away at the referees. In the territory days, a lot of times you would have the guy that was known as being the ring crew guy. He'd come and he'd get up on the ring apron and try to start unscrewing the top turnbuckle so that it could come out so the cuff could be switched or slipped off. But the heels would, would keep him away, and they'd play king of the hill with anybody else trying to come in as the bell was ringing. And the baby faces underneath on the, you know, on the card, they are coming back out. Maybe... A main event guy doesn't come out until after it's all over with, and then he runs out with one boot on or shower shoes on and, and shampoo in his hair to explain why that he didn't come out and make the save because he had just wrestled and was in the shower when all this went going on. And through all of that chaos and urgency being portrayed at ringside, and if a guy was tied in the ropes instead of cuffed, then I've done this finish and I've seen it before. You'd send the ring crew guy to go under the ring with and get in the toolbox and either come out with bolt cutters or a fucking knife and cut the rope or cut the fucking cuffs. But it would be too late because the heels were urgently doing this after taunting the babyface when they see people coming out and trying to intervene and they're starting to knock them off. Then they get their business done. And then somehow that one baby face that's been trapped gets loose or too many people come in the ring and the heels bail with no contact. So they leave with their heat, but they don't just finish what they're doing like they did here and just stroll off with nobody ever having tried to hinder their fucking criminality. So this was just part of an angle that somebody remembered somebody telling the story of but nobody knew how to execute the fucking thing to where it had any impact. 
and made any difference or looked any different than anything else. Does what I said just make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. Cole looks so weak, just sitting there holding the rope while he's, as you're saying, cuffed to it. But it looked because you see the giant chain and the other cuff on the ground. It looked like he was just holding the rope. Yeah. And he's saying, please let her go. Let her go. Who's he saying that to? Jericho or the girls? <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was a situation. He had no power over anyone. It was a situation that it was no way to make it work well, I don't think. And there goes Julio and everyone right behind me. This wasn't uh, necessarily done, I think, too well. Now, to be honest, there are a lot of fans who think this was really great, that it was well done, that this is going to really make people want to see Adam Cole get his hands on Chris Jericho, and I guess Britt Baker get her hands on the outcasts. What do you think of that argument? Well, again, they've, they've mixed a main event singles level program with Cole and Jericho in with the girls angle. And how's that? They're going to have a fucking eight or 10 person with a couple of Jericho's guys and the Ruby Soso and Tony storm against Brit and hater and Cole and whoever the nah, fu- no. mix match. It'll be Jericho and Soraya against Brit and Cole. Oh my God. And see, that's going to be rotten. And so they, they decided they were going to do this and then they put everybody else into it that they had to put into it and they watered it down and they didn't know how to execute and nobody's probably ever seen it before done live in person properly. And if people liked it, well, imagine what they would have thought if they'd have seen it done properly in person before they saw this. Hey, once again, you know, you want to give someone a chance. This is the second time they've debuted Adam Cole, and I'm so unimpressed with everything they've done with him. And he looks weak. And I know there are people that watch that reality show that say, if you watch that, Cole and Britt come off like the biggest, especially Cole, like the biggest baby faces. There are people that don't think Britt came off well, but I've I've had people, people tell me that if you want to hate Britt Baker, watch that program, and you will hate her by the time it's over with. Well, I've also heard some people think the other way. Other people think Sammy Guevara comes across as very sweet and charming on that show. I mean, a lot of people have different thoughts about it, but I don't like the way they're using Adam Cole. And again, he's another one of these guys that Tony Khan loves maybe more than most wrestling fans would. But I guess the point is before we move on quickly, um, when they try to redo these angles from the past and nobody has the context on what instigated them, how they were done, how exactly they're executed, how everybody needs to play their part and what comes out of it. You just, it's like when shit stain you, he remembered Piper hitting snooker with the coconut. And so he, he wanted to do moments of people getting hit with coconuts without any of the context that made it memorable and the talent that made it memorable. But that, and, and that's something I used to, again, go over ga- with guys in OVW, especially when we were training people from scratch on how to do these things. And guys got practice, not in how to be the integral parts of the angle, but in how to be the support and the fill for the angle, the guys running out, the guys getting knocked off the apron, the guy coming out with the fucking bolt cutters, the staggered timing of the run-ins to where everybody was accounted for and reasonably busy and i would ask guys when they come to me with finishes i'd say okay give me the finish you want to do bing 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 okay where's where's brian he's not accounted for oh he got drop kicked 
Well, he got drop kicked between 45 seconds and a minute ago. So where is he now? Because he wouldn't sell that for a minute. And make sure that every, nobody ends up with their dick in their hands, standing around in the way, or obviously not having anything to do when they could be doing something if they wanted to. They could, if they're not supposed to help the situation, but they have an obvious opportunity, then they have not either been taken care of in the finish to be placed in the right place or known how to take care of themselves to not be caught in that predicament. And you always want to teach guys, where are you? And none of this, this was not allowed, the hiding underneath the ring or at ringside or just sitting around until your cue. You had to have something to do to keep you busy in a natural way for every second that you were in view of the people in the arena, TV or not, or you got yelled at. Because it's one take and it's fucking live and we don't do bullshit. And now people just run in or don't run in intermittently with no reason, no purpose. And, and if, if they're not needed for a spot for the next couple minutes, they are allowed to just roll out on the floor and lay around for a while in full view of the people. Fuck all of that. So anyway, bad training. Bad training and improper agenting and producing. And probably a good deal of not listening comes into all of this. Moving on. Jake Hager, Cool Hand Luke, and Daddy Mac Mac Daddy against the acclaimed and Billy Gunn. And I don't know what Caster said, but it's the first time I've ever heard them bleep his rap or blap his reap. They bleeped his rap. The heels jumped the baby faces before the bell. They went a minute and they went to the break. They came back, immediately gave a tag to Billy Gunn. He made a comeback. They stopped him. Cool Hand Luke hit his partner, Mac Daddy, by mistake with his comb. And then Billy Gunn broke Cool Hand Luke's comb, which was the biggest pop of the match, I think. And then Acclaimed hit their finish, one, two, three. Now they've just, the people like the acclaimed so much that Tony feels like he, they have to see them, but he has nothing for them to do, so they do this. Any comments? Can't add too much to that. I don't think anyone really wanted to see this as much as they wanted to see the acclaimed. Like he said, Caster got a nice pop for the tag at the end to do his uh, elbow drop. You know, I think you got to do something different with them now. They got over with the scissor me ass daddy. How long do you ride that now? Well, the thing is that or what they, is the scissor me daddy ass? Scissor me ass daddy. <laughs> scissor me timbers. Um, you can still do that for, because as long as the people like it, but if they were involved with or doing something else besides that. They're becoming only to, that, I guess, is the yes, problem. Yeah, because that's all it's, and he's got no other tag teams. And the tag teams that he did have are now three-man teams, so they can go for the EVP's six-man tag team fetish title. And it, it, he just, he, he, didn't, he didn't know. Tony didn't know what to do with them after they got over, so he decided, I won't do anything. And plus, as we said, he had a green tag team that he 
had no choice but to put in with other green teams, and I think that hurt him. And he had no choice because he won't use teams unless they're green. It's not Let's easy. Let's get being to the green. main event. It's not easy being green. Boy, howdy. Um, speaking of greenery, the main event of the evening. Winner will go on to face Darby Allen. The winner of that gets MJF. MJF has given Sammy a blank check to win this thing and then lay down for him in the main event of the pay-per-view, which if people thought that's what they were actually going to see, they wouldn't buy it. So we know that. But anyway, um, at the bell between Sammy Guevara and Jungle Jack Boy Perry, Jungle Boy drop kicked Sammy straight to the floor and hit a dive five seconds in. Threw Sammy back in the ring, and Sammy jumped up and dove out on Jungle Boy five seconds later. And then Sammy threw Jungle Boy in the ring and jumped up on the apron and stood there so that Jungle Boy could run all the way across the ring, jump over the top rope, put his legs around Sammy's head, and Hurricane Rana him off to the floor. And then Jungle Boy threw Sammy in. And Sammy sold nothing and ended up hitting a Spanish fly off the top rope, which in case, like most people, you don't know what the fuck a Spanish fly is. They both get up on the top rope together, and one of them at the, well, both of them at the same time, with obvious cooperation, one of them does a backflip while holding the other guy that's doing a forward flip, and they land in the middle of the ring. And that was the first five moves of the match. And I wrote at that point, I don't know if I can take anymore. And they went back to the apron and they did some contrived apron parkour where they kept flipping and still landing on the apron without really doing anything while the referee stared slack-jawed and mouth agape at what was going on, and then Sammy hit the aforementioned Spanish fly, but instead of off the top rope into the ring, he hit it off the apron onto the floor. (laughs) So that means they both took a fucking big fucking flipping bump off the apron of the ring onto the fucking floor, and that was just the break spot. And when they came back, they were actually in the ring. So, of course, another case of starting out with the German gangbang porn and then finishing up with the Showtime R-rated flick, they're back in the ring trying to wrestle. And I fast-forwarded that shit match where I saw a bunch more flips and big moves that nobody was selling. And then finally, the finish was that Sammy drop-kicked Jungle Boy off the top rope I don't know if he was supposed to go through the table. It actually looked better that he didn't for once because instead of breaking a table, it looked like he actually hit something hard that could have damaged him. But Jungle Boy flies off the top rope after the drop kick, hits one of the ringside tables, boom, with his upper body and bounces off on the floor. And the referee starts the count. And you think, okay, you would buy the count out, right? But instead... At eight, Jungle Boy is up, and he's going to get back in the ring, and Sammy draws the referee, and there's MJF appears from behind him, spins him around, got the diamond ring, boom, knocks him goofy with the ring, and then bails and disappears, and Jungle Boy is counted out. 
And again, count out finish. That was fine. It would have worked with the fucking drop kick off the top. I know that wasn't the story, but how the fuck is it, this? They get up after everything. You can't do an angle anymore because nothing conceivably can hurt these people. Um, and that, so at least now, Jungle Boy's out of it, as he should be. And hopefully next week, or whenever this match is, they'll do the right thing. Darby will beat Sammy, honestly, fairly, somehow, and resourcefully at least. And then our title match at the pay-per-view will be Darby Allen versus MJF. And, you know, then Sammy can be involved, whatever, but hopefully Jungle Boy is out of this picture. He's just dragging the thing down. The fact that Jungle Boy lost via countout makes me think that they're not going to... There's no way that's the end of this story. So he is either going to be figured into the match or just him and Sammy is something separate. I'm not really clamoring for him and Sammy again. <sighs> so that's, again, I, that's why I think they're going to put him in that match. Well, I agree with you. You're right, or elsewise they would have just beat him, but we can hope, can't we? Uh, but that was dynamite. And if brains were gasoline, the booker couldn't blow his nose. That was indeed another episode of Dynamite. You want to talk about the ratings? Have, wait, have they come in? Have we, have we diddled around long enough that the ratings have come in? They've escaped. I don't know if we They've want to say that. They've escaped. Well, and I got some big news over here, maybe affecting uh, uh, Castle Cornet and all of the occupants as well. So let's do the ratings, and then oh. I'll fill you in on that. I hope everything's all right, but let's do these ratings. This week, as I said, April 19th, AEW Dynamite on TBS, 830,000 viewers. Ouch. That would, Now, they've been in the eights. We've had a lot of eights lately. And I, I think I said last week that may be where they're at as far as with no big competition and no big stars. They're kind of, that's the base audience, right? But now they've, they've lost a few. It was higher eights instead of lower eights. This was the lowest total viewership since February 15th. Well, so after Valentine's Day. I don't know what that has to do with anything. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but. So a, lot of, a lot of the viewers gave them the kiss off. I guess so. Let's get the quarter hour breakdowns, Jim. The first quarter of this week, segment one, 8 to 8.15 p.m., the Jack Perry, Darby Allen, Sammy Guevara, MJF live promo segment, 963,000 viewers. Okay, you know what? This is starting to concern me. Is the bottom falling out of the Big Bang Theory market? Last week was 919. Yeah, well, they always had over a million to start with because of the big bangers uh, until here just recently. I'm I'm worried maybe everybody's seen every episode of that show for the ninth time. So uh, go ahead. That's the worst show. But anyway, oh, by the way, these uh, were compiled by WrestleNomics. Quarter 2, 8.15 to 8.30 p.m. Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter versus The Outcasts with Picture in Picture. 853,000 viewers. Ouch! Okay, now, just judging from their overall average, some people have to come back <laughs> after that is over. If, if, if they feel like it's safe to return to the television after the girls' match is over, because that was a drop of 110,000 people in the first half hour. 
And by the way, for comparison's sake, last week went from 919 to 901. So not as big a drop, obviously. The third segment, the third quarter, segment three, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m., the finish of the aforementioned Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter versus the Outcast match, the Wardlow and Arn Anderson backstage interview, Kenny Omega and Brian Danielson's live promo slash angle with the Blackpool Combat Club and the Elite, as well as Takeshita, 869,000 viewers. Okay, so they picked up uh, 16,000 out of the 110,000 that they lost previously. The fourth quarter, 8.45 to 9 p.m., Powerhouse Hobbs versus Wardlow with picture-in-picture, the post-match with Christian Cage and Luchasaurus, and the Sammy Guevara MJF backstage promo. It'd be best for Hobbs's career if there had been a massive power outage on the East Coast and all of California, but go ahead. 846,000 viewers. Oh, well, at least there's 23,000 people that didn't see that thing that uh, might buy Hobbs another day. So, yeah, so they backed down another 23,000. And that's not too far off last week. Last week was 854,000 viewers for that segment, and that was Orange Cassidy versus Buddy Matthews. It just took them a little bit longer last week to get down that far. Segment 5, the 9 o'clock hour, 9 to 9.15 p.m., Jay White versus Commander with picture-in-picture, the post-match with Juice Robinson, Ricky Starks, and Sean Spears, 791,000 viewers. Ouch. Okay, there goes another rubber tree plant. There goes 46 and 9 is 55,000 more people. The next segment, segment 6, uh, yes, the next segment, segment 6, the FTR, Mark Briscoe, Jay Lethal, Jeff Jarrett, backstage promo and angle, <laughs> as well as the Chris Jericho, Adam Cole live promo, and the angle with Daniel Garcia, Britt Baker, and the outcasts, and the handcuffs, I guess we should say. And the handcuffs. 792,000 viewers. Oh boy, well, let's just call that flat. Is that within the statistical margin of error? They, got, they, they picked up 1,000 people. Segment 7, Matt Hardy's backstage promo, oh, excuse me, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m., Matt Hardy's backstage promo, and the acclaimed and Billy Gunn versus the Jericho Appreciation Society with picture-in-picture, 761,000 viewers. And there goes another 31,000. So do you think the people now have just, there is no hope. At least we can beat the traffic from the couch to our bedroom. Well, we'll find out if they beat it here. The last segment, segment 8, 9.45 to 10 p.m., Sammy Guevara versus Jungle Boy Jack Perry with picture-in-picture in in the post-match with MJF and Darby Allin. And something that was talked about through the course of the show more often than not since they had that set up at the beginning. If you weren't sick of them after that whole beginning thing, (laughs) 762,000 viewers. Oh, your ribbon. Okay, well, they got a thousand people, have all, both of their immediate families and their in-laws. Basically, you say, oh, Jungle Jack and who dad are up. So, yee. So, 
that's 200,000 people that they hemorrhaged in two hours. And that would be approximately a little bit more than 20% of the audience they started with. And for people who want to point out, well, the WWE loses that viewers too, not in those great percentages, except in some cases, the third hour of raw, which that's the third fucking hour. So, uh, and honestly, I don't know how they stay through the WWE programs either. Maybe it's just that they're put in a catatonic state when watching those things. It's like trying to watch water freeze. Whereas over here, it's like once you figure out that there's going to be nothing different than the chaos you've already seen for the first 30 minutes or so, you give up. WWE, you watch for the stars. I'm not saying we do, but I think the average fan, they watch for the stars. They'll sit through stuff to see the big stars. And when the big stars aren't really there... The product feels lackluster. When as a big star, people will sit through all sorts of shit, as we have now found out, yes. just to get 90 seconds with them in the ring or something. For AEW, you watch for the chaos, because that's all it is. In the ring, I'm not only talking in the ring, because you wouldn't see any of the backstage stuff on this show, but it's just you never know who's going to land on their head. You never know what's going to go wrong. People are just going to be bleeding for no reason. <laughs> it's just chaos. But when chaos becomes the norm, you have no chaos. And then they can't out-chaos their chaos. And then people move on to a different form of chaos. To go back real quick to something we talked about earlier in the week. I think so. Or was it this episode? No, it was earlier in the week. Who has any fucking idea at this point? The idea that there'll be a Saturday show and CM Punk will be on that. Presumably for the debut episode on. That's a good move. I mean, just to talk about from a business perspective for Punk, if you don't have to be tied to the dwindling dynamite ratings that keep going down (laughs) and you could start anew with a new show and start here, I don't know. That's better than trying to go rescue this. It's going to be hard to rescue dynamite. Well, and then, then again, there is something to be said for the incumbent position, the recognized night, which is a better night for television viewership for that apparently that uh, demographic uh, and just, you know, what they're used to. But for any disaffected people who may say, well, you know what, let's, we like the concept of AEW, but these shows, Jesus Christ, they might want to migrate over. Would you like to migrate? I guess so. Just one other thing I'll say, the Adam Cole Jericho stuff didn't perform well here. And they've been building up that stuff even before the big angle here. I think, and I've said this before, even before Jericho got attached to this, for the reasons we knew he would, but I think they may like Adam Cole more than the average fan does or will. And that's even before he gets in the ring and takes off his shirt. I think he seems like a really nice guy. Yeah. But especially this week, just him sitting there saying, let her go to to whoever, to Jericho. He wasn't even holding her down. (laughs) But I think... Adam Cole's now all over this show. Jericho's ideas are all over this show. Just endless people running around. There's so many people in every segment. There's an angle in every segment. So you have to sit through the angle. You have to sit through the angles with the people you don't care about to get to a segment that may have an angle with someone you care about. Uh, And by then you've probably seen the angle earlier in the program. That's right. Right in the segment before it, usually. (laughs) 
Well, you said you had some big news, bigger than these uh, ratings, I well, presume. Yes, uh, this could affect the, the future of all of us here in the, in, in, in the periphery of the Cornet Empire, my family, everybody. I'm being sued, Brian. I am being sued in a court of law, even. As a matter of fact, uh, the U.S. District Court, Southern District of New York, those are badasses oh, wow. up there. They don't play around. No, they don't. And you know who's suing me? Is it Rio? It is not Rio. It is. This is a a much bigger name <laughs> in the professional wrestling industry. Uh, who would in the Southern District of New York? That's what makes it an interesting play there. It is not WWE Hall of Famer Donald Fucking President Pig Shit Trump. Is it from your outside of wrestling activities with you know uh, recognized organized crime figures? No, I have I have no memory of any of that. But I'll tell you, because you're not going to get it, because nobody's going to get it, because when I say the name, people are going to say, who? Raka Khan. Raka Khan is suing me in a court of law in the United States District Court, the Southern District of New York. Guess what the, the offense is? Conspiring to kidnap her and her children. Oh, my God. What have you done? Well, I'll tell you by <laughs> Cracky exactly what, but it, I'm not alone. I'm in good company. A lot of people have been involved in this thing. It's it, the now there must have been a whistleblower. There's been some kind of blowing going on in this thing. Is, because one, of her, of, is one of her kids named Rufus? I like the idea of it being Rockacon and Rufus. Well, no. It, <laughs> is it, let me, first of all, let me back up. I said a lot of people would go, who? If you have been a wrestling fan for more than 15 years. You might have seen this, this lady, uh, Raka Khan. That's the name she used in impact TNA. She was with TNA in 2008 to 2009. And I don't know what other name she used. And uh, apparently she went to the diva search in 2005 and went to deep South and they released her shortly thereafter. And then she, apparently got an impact for about a year. And then she was apparently in that Lucha Libre USA for about a year. And then, but here is the thing. She has sued me for this. And also, would you like to hear the other co-defendants that I have been grouped with in this lawsuit, kidnapping, conspiring, to kidnap her and her children, my other co-defendants. Would you like to hear this list? Yeah, let me hear it, because I'm looking at pictures of her, and she's fine, so maybe I'm on her side. Oh, come on now. You know, it, and and by the way, folks, if you want to Google her, I wish, she's a very tall, statuesque lady. I believe, as I remember, she was probably about six foot two. Not a, not Holy a plump, shit. Not wow. a plump woman. More like a, if Grace Jones became a pro wrestler. But anyway... She looks much better than Grace Jones. Well, but she's tall and her legs go all the way to the ground. That was her main attribute, as I recall. But anyway, would you like to hear my co-defendants? Yeah, please. This is almost going to sound like a West Shore home spot. <laughs> okay. I have been sued along with the state of Texas, the El Paso Child Protective Services, the FBI, the Las Cruces, New Mexico Police Department, the NYPD, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, New York ACS, I'm not sure, 
Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, the Shirley Police Department. Shirley, you're not going to sue the Shirley Police Department. Shirley, New York? I don't know. Okay. Is there another Shirley? I mean, there must be plenty of Shirleys, but back to your list. Sigma Phi Epsilon, Suffolk County, New York, The Rock. <laughs> Wait, The Rock, that's the what it Rock. says? Not Dwayne uh, Johnson. Yes. The, no, well, that, that Rock. Also, The Miz and Maurice. Ah. Current Impact Wrestling star Heath Slater. Or he, or no, Heath Miller. I'm sorry, I only knew Heath Slater. Heath Miller. WWE Hall of Famer Nikki Bella. I knew it. The late... I had my suspicions about that Nikki Bella but, trying but to steal children. Apparently not Brie. She was not a part of this. She would never come to the meetings. The late Chris Benoit. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. Former WWE <laughs> talent Mark Jindrak. See, he might be able to get, get out of that because it calls him a talent. So, the now defunct Panda Energy. A Panda is Energy defunct? is defunct. I didn't know that. Is that true? Well, it, it, hey, I'm just a small town bird lawyer. I just know what I read on the interwebs. And it says, if, if, obviously, I went to the meetings with these other people. I just didn't know that Panda had gone out of business. No shit. I'm on Wikipedia. This is true. Panda Energy International was an American privately held company headquartered in Dallas, Texas, which constructs, maintains, and operates environmentally friendly power plants. The organization has been recognized by Newsweek magazine as one of the top 10 eco-friendly energy companies in America. Apparently, it didn't get them very far. As of 2010, it has been affiliated with Panda Power Funds. Panda Energy informed its shareholders that it would shut down at the end of 2018. Wow! So, Dixie bankrupted her parents also, apparently. On September 6, 2018, Panda Chairwoman, or Chairman, excuse me, Janice, it says Chairman, but Janice Carter, sent what she referred to as the final shareholder letter. The letter states independent power companies can no longer operate. Wow. So they shut down. They can no longer operate. When did TNA get sold? Oh, good Lord. A couple years before that, wasn't it? Well, nevertheless, they're going to have to answer for this conspiracy that we were all in together. And by the way, the list continues. Would you like to hear the next name on the list? Yeah. Home Depot. Oh, well, they have duct tape. Uh, how'd you know? <laughs> also, the now defunct Florida Championship Wrestling. <laughs> Steve Kern. Oh, no. The National Wrestling Alliance, NWA President Billy Corgan, the now defunct Deep South Wrestling, the late Sam Mushnick, Paul Bank, Bosch, Bank of America. I can believe that. Basketball star Michael Jordan. Uh oh. Well, you know, he lost a lot of his money in that fucking uh, tennis shoe thing. Well, he's a gambler. Well, he made money with the tennis shoes. Well, no, but you don't know what his overhead was. Several universities. And then it kept Jim Cornette. <laughs> Mick Foley. <laughs> followed by, I'm glad it didn't say the now defunct Jim Cornette, but Mick Foley, New York City area energy company Con Edison. 
Wow. And countless others, too numerous to list here. On I'm reading from PWInsider.com and Mike Johnson's excellent reporting on this, and he's been on this case because, uh, obviously, uh, there has been no movement on the case for months. Good, because I didn't even fucking know it existed until I saw this headline today. You haven't been served. Obviously. No, it says no. none of the defendants listed have been served as of this writing. But I'll tell you what, right now, as soon as I am, this has got to be the next Crusade for Children fundraiser to sell copies of it on the <laughs> website. So, oh, but wait a minute. It's a 48-page lawsuit. Oh, I need this. Where is this? It, it, wait a minute. It shows that she is seeking. Do you know how, many, how much in damages she's seeking for this conspiracy that all of us, including Home Depot and the now defunct people, entered into? How much does she want in damages? There's some big companies and a bank, at least one bank listed there. I'm going to go with a billion dollars. Three billion dollars. <laughs> I went high and she went higher. Wow. It's a 48-page lawsuit, and apparently the majority of the filing is a long list of defendants, some of whom are listed multiple times. And uh, But now, folks, in case you're wondering, she has been involved with the how do we say this again? Once again, I'm only the small-town bird lawyer. She's been involved with the legal system over the past four years or so, and, and PW Insider has been reporting on that, but apparently the charges go back to August 2019 when she failed to appear in court and was listed as one of El Paso's most wanted fugitives. Oh, wow. Because she was accused or charged, however the phraseology is, with interference with child custody and aggravated kidnapping facilitate. That's and the state that's what she's accusing you of. Well, yeah, well, I mean, see, there, there's obviously a difference of opinion here. In the state of Texas, interference with child custody is when someone takes or retains a child when that person knows that the taking or detention of the child violates a judgment or order. And apparently, this uh there was multiple no-shows of her in court. Her bail was revoked. A bench warrant was issued for her arrest, but she posted a bond, but then she was picked up. Apparently, she claimed she was taken to Rikers Island after she was ar arrested by U.S. Marshals in October of 2021, but they failed to provide a scintilla of evidence. That's a quote, scintilla about her extradition. And she claims judge overseeing the hearing ordered her released, but the arrest and hearing allowed for the kidnapping of her children and that the law enforcement agencies involved failed to intervene. So basically, she apparently took some children that she does not have custody of, and when they caught her and took them back, we all entered into this conspiracy along with Con Edison, Michael Jordan, uh, Home Depot, and the Las Cruces, New Mexico Police Department, among others, with Nikki Bella taking the notes as executive secretary. I knew you were up to something. Um, and that's this may have been what defuncted Panda Energy. They may have been paying under the table to keep this news out of the public eye. But anyway, so now... 
the judge has ruled that she can move forward with suing these 48 pages of people. So I'm sweating this. I'm calling Stephen P. New. And now, here's the thing. The last I saw of this woman, she was doing YouTube videos a couple of years ago where she was out in front of some courthouse or some, some place to do with her legal plight. And she was cutting this promo that sounded like a combination of Ron Wright and a Southern Baptist preacher where she was doing the, the whole, almost speaking in tongues. And they have not given me my rights and they have interfered with my freedoms. And one would think that, I don't know if what the proper term may have been raving or ranting, but one would think if a person was acting like this out in front of a county building or a city building or a public building that that someone would come along and put a net over them take them in for some kind of observation or maintenance or something and then it, it, it references this in the pw insider post and they, apparently the videos were made private on youtube uh so i guess we can't see those anymore but now you realize I've not even seen this woman in person in 15 years. Yeah, it doesn't really say what you have done as part of this conspiracy. No, I mean, and it's not as easy to figure out as it is to see what the fucking Omega sci-fi fraternity would have had to do with this. I mean, that's easy. But me, it would be a little harder to tie to this. I, I tried to cover my tracks. But no, this, she came into TNA, I, I guess after they flunked her out of deep south she was trying to do independent stuff and she is a large striking looking woman so they hired her for the knockouts division and i mean uh, obviously i don't know if you were even watching at the time but i don't know if she was as rotten as linda miles but i often had linda miles flashbacks when i was watching her matches but there was it wasn't my program. OVW was mine, so I was more obsessive about it and the quality of same, whereas I was turning a, a blind eye or holding my nose for a lot of things that were in TNA at that point, male and female. So, But I don't recall her being a, a the second coming of Sherry Martell or Medusa or whatever. But in, in, in digging deeper into my personal relationship with Raka Khan, who now uh, it's it's come it's come to this that our relationship has deteriorated to the point where she's suing me i want to sue i think i'll sue you rocket con please don't sue me please don't sue me rocket con i want to sue i think i'll sue you rocket con con. (laughs) i the only okay just here's the interaction i had with this woman in tna because by the, by 2008, I don't even think I was doing the authority figuring that I had been doing earlier. I, I don't think I, I think they had Mick doing that by that point. But I was obviously I was a an agent producer, blah blah blah. I never agented or produced or whatever they were calling us then any of the women's matches. That was usually Dutch. Occasionally, had help from one of the other boys. I think Simon Diamond, Lance Diamond, did some of them. But I was usually doing. The other matches, and I was in the truck, so I never worked with the knockouts matches. And I'm trying to think if I was ever even on camera with this woman in, in, in terms of our professional relationship there where we were both fulfilling our jobs in TNA. Because, I mean, 
it it doesn't come to mind, but I did a lot of them. You know, old Shitstain was the master of the pre-tapes back then, and he had backstage pre-tapes blocked out for, you know, the original cast of fucking Ben-Hur in some cases. So we may be in a, gr- a group scene. We were faces in the crowd. I don't know. But I also never had a meaningful conversation with it. This th- Literally, our interaction was limited to, Raka Khan, how you doing? Good, how are you? Boy, it's going to be a hot one today. Sure is. Rock Khan. If she was standing in front of the Coke machine, I might say, oh, is the Sprite sold out again today? No, I'm not sure. That type of interaction. And then I was trying to think, okay, since we never had a meaningful personal conversation, nor did we ever work together in a professional capacity for the company that we were both with her, even more briefly than me, did we ever mention her on our podcast, Brian Last? Did we cover the just the original news when she was on the most wanted fugitive list. We could possibly have done that. I'll look it up to see if we ever talked about her on the YouTube channel. I mean, she must have come up at some point because it was also all that drama with her and Kurt Angle. So, Oh, yeah. And I've yeah. heard her name before, so... And I don't watch yes. Impact, so it must have come up Actually, I think the majority of times that her name might have been mentioned since she was not on television anymore, might have been if people were telling stories about Kurt Angle. Poor old Kurt, who fell under her influence at one point in time, I guess would be the best way to put it. Yeah, nothing on the YouTube channel that I see. So, you know, I've, I've covered my tracks well. Hopefully nobody will be able to find out the real... I was actually the ringleader. And the kids are actually in my attics. I've just had spray foam insulated. That's why I didn't want the little crumb snatchers to be in the in the attic and the heat or the humidity. So I made it a nice little space for them. They're chained up in there right now. Well, hold on, though. Let me stop you. The kids she's talking about, is she claiming that the kids that she kidnapped are the kids that are being kidnapped from her? Apparently, or- she kidnapped the kids and was not only charged with it, but actually on the most wanted fugitive right. list for failing to appear in court to answer for that. Are these the but same w- kids in, in question? Yes, when they finally caught her and took her to jail to Rikers Island, as she says, uh, that was uh, that allowed for the kidnapping of her children away from her, the ones that she had kidnapped. So it's a double reverse kidnap here, which is even more serious in a court of law, could be a double felony, and double jeopardy laws do not apply. So is this they arrested her for the charge of kidnapping the kids, and at that point, Child Protective Services jumped in, took the kids into their custody to return them back to, I don't know who, whatever the state of origin was in this country? And then yes, now that, she, that's, that's, that's exactly what it is? That sounds pretty much like right. what, what has just happened here. But they're in on it, too, because, yeah, Of course, see? well, of course. The El Paso Child Protective Services are the first... No, the state of Texas is the first defendant. I'd sue them first, too. They're big. Yeah, and they're big, and they <laughs> then they run the whole shebang down there, the whole ball of beeswax. And the FBI, we knew they were crooked. That's what I've been hearing for so long. I didn't know it was going to take yeah. Rock Khan to convince me of it. Ever since they lost Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., they have not been the same organization. Okay. All righty there. So we're going to keep you up to as long as we can continue doing this program. I know my legal fees are going to be ridiculous because Stephen P. New is, is, I'm afraid he's not going to handle this for me. I'm going to have to go out there in the, in the pool of attorneys because he doesn't, he don't want to be known as a noted conspiracy attorney. He may take this one on for the laughs. I don't know. (laughs) 
Well, I think I, I told you, I think that's why that this uh, apparently the a judge has alla- said this lawsuit can move forward with prepaying any court fees. If she prepays the court fees, they say she can move forward with the lawsuit. I think the yeah, judge what does says, that mean? I got to see what the fuck's going to happen here. Well, apparently there's fees when you file some no, no. kind of suit. So I, if I get she that. gives them the money, she can file the suit. So you can file as crazy a lawsuit as you want as long as you pay for it? Sure. It's This is America. I've never thought about doing just crazy out of the blue lawsuits. This is a You can sue whole... anybody for anything. Every every lawyer I've retained for the last 40 years, and there's been several, has told me that. All right. You're going to be home tomorrow? Uh, no, I'm, st- I'm going to leave on a long vacation. <laughs> well, speaking of long vacations, we got to wrap it up soon. And Swami's barking at someone again, and at least the lawnmowers are gone, but... We have a little bit of news that's coming out as we're getting ready to release this show, Jim. Should we just talk nonstop and news will break constantly and we never end the program and people can just tune in the live stream until we die? My plan is for us to back ourselves into a daily morning show that'll go for four hours a day. But breaking news. Yeah, I'll I'll back up on you on that one, but go ahead. Breaking news. news. Well, I don't even know if we can call it news, but this is going around right now. With all the talk about CM Punk returning to AEW and a potential Chicago date and everything else and a potential Saturday show, AEW Collision, word has now come out that apparently CM Punk being included in the new Saturday show was a major part of the picture for Warner Brothers Discovery. They wanted CM Punk and Dave Meltzer did some math on his own and again, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is, have they left him alone again? He's supposed to have somebody with him. That last accident. Well, he wrote this. Holy in, mackerel. He wrote this in the Observer. Well, they had, I'll have you know, they had to use Bon Ami on the bathroom floor last time they left him alone. But go ahead. He wrote this about the new show, this new uh, Saturday show. If AEW only makes what Discovery has been paying for first run shows as a general rule, which is $500,000 per hour in general, is what they're paying for first-run programming. That's $52 million per year, and that's a game-changing financial deal for AEW. Jesus Christ, $52 million a year to give them a program with CM Punk on it. The $52 million man, CM Punk. Well, now, wait a minute. Hold on here a second. Now, it seems like that now that that little piece of information is being bandied around in the public. Well, I think that besides the fact that CM Punk has had a long vacation and that vacation should come to an end for the good of AEW's business, for the good of Punk's business, should he... N- I think that that torn peck ought to start bothering him a little bit unless he gets his contract renegotiated. Because they're going to give Tony Khan's AEW $52 million a year for a show contingent on CM Punk being on it. And after all the public mudslinging and the fact that Punk, is his name has been drugged through the mud after he was physically assaulted and his space invaded by the childish and petulant EVPs, Shouldn't that be worth a uh, 15% finder's fee on that $52 million? Who's handling his business these days? Years ago, I think it was Mickey Mantle, although I've seen the quote attributed to different people. 
but I believe Mickey Mantle was asked, once the era of free agency started, once players in baseball started making all that money, they said, what would it be like for you if at your peak, when you played for the New York Yankees, you had to negotiate your contract with George Steinbrenner, considering the kind of years you had and how much money they're paying people today and the value of players. And he said, I'd walk in there and I'd shake his hand. I'd say, hello, partner. <laughs> you got to know your value sometimes, even if it pisses people off. Okay, and, and so coming back down to earth, and I mean, that might be a, a thing that Punk's thinking about at this point, but coming back down to earth, that makes a little bit more sense now with the reports that they were trying to or wanting to or thinking about splitting the roster and putting Punk on, you know, one show or whatever the other guys. I mean, they still, the, the EVPs want to be away from him because they're cowardly little sots and they're all scared of him. But now it comes out that they have not only been sabotaging Tony Khan's efforts to bring back a big star in the wrestling business that may or may not, depending on your viewpoint, have brought significantly larger television viewing numbers to their program or uh, sold a few more pay-per-views or a few more live event tickets or whatever. Now we find out that they have been trying to sabotage the efforts to bring back the one guy that the network stipulates they want to be involved in a new program. So is that not more, I mean, I know that the little buckaroos, little Maddie and Nikki, are right-wing zealots, but are they taking a class in insurrectionism here? Hasn't the, Now we find out that what they've been doing with every time that the, we talked about it, what, just on the last program we did, every time that they get wind, I'm sure they get wind even before we get wind, that there's conversations between Tony and Punk or intent to bring him back or some opening of communications. Then all of a sudden something gets leaked from their side or Blandon Cutlet tweets something or agrees with something that inflames the talks and sets them back because they don't want him back. But apparently not only do three or 400,000 of the television viewers want him back, but now the network wants him back. For a program that they could gross, that company could gross $50 million in a year on. If I was Tony Khan, I would be telling Kenny and Maddie and Nikki to grab their knee pads and fucking do some squats because they're going to be on their knees in front of Punk for a long time, whether they need to beg or plead or blow or whatever they need to do to get that man to agree to come back and do whatever the fuck the network wants him to do for $50 million, and if they don't like it, they can hit the fucking bricks. How, how far is this going to go? And by the way, he could still sue for the executives led by the Bucks and Omega and Mega from the number two in the company and the executive vice president storming into the dressing room. There's still plenty that can be done over that, so they just keep playing games, it seems like. Do you, is, is anybody at the network actually following this shit show to understand that the people that work directly under Tony have been the ones trying to run the guy that they want on the program out of the company? Is anybody paying attention over there? Listen, when AEW started, there were several people that Tony Khan wanted working for him. 
You know that as well as I do. CM Punk. I'm not not allowed to say. I carefully crafted my phrase there, but CM Punk was one of those guys. And CM Punk, for whatever reason, said, no, I want to sit back and see how this plays out. So whatever investment mentally the Bucks and Omega and Cody and whoever made in the early days, Punk didn't see it that way. He saw it as something to sit back and let's see how this plays out. Let's monitor the situation. Eventually he comes back and all of these guys that were big deals in their own little world, all of a sudden they're not selling the most merch. All of a sudden their segments are getting over the way they used to. Never forget that Young Bucks segment where the fans started chanting FTR. That was game over for FTR, that segment right there. But CM Punk came in there, did all these things, as Tony Khan himself has said, boosted the business, and kept to himself. He didn't go hang out in their locker room or dressing room, whatever you want to call it. Kept to himself. Now, some guys would go and spend time with him. But this is what happens when you don't go and play the game that everyone else is playing backstage. And if a Saturday show, again, it's not as good as Wednesday nights, as you've said several times, but if a Saturday show means a fresh start for some of that crew, where they're not going to have to put up with the backstage games and the drama and the children, then that's a good thing. Who's going to book it? That's the problem. (laughs) The problem, and again, and I've even heard some people be complimentary of the new Ring of Honor under Tony. Now, we haven't seen it, but I've heard some people say, how come Dynamite's not as good as that? Which is funny that people would be saying that. But if Tony- Well, here's the thing. He has... I'm, I'll, I'll let you finish your thought in a second, but with Ring of Honor, even if it's more complimentary, it's just because he probably has fewer people in Ring of Honor that he will listen to, and at least it's something coming from basically one person instead of a bunch of people that he listens to in AEW doing their own shit, which doesn't fucking match with any of the other shit. Go ahead. So even if Tony's doing a good job at Ring of Honor, which we haven't seen, and we see what Dynamite is, and that's not a good job in any way, but a lot of guys were strong-willed, or at least will play the game, get their ideas on that show, maybe with some touches of Tony Khan that he thinks, because he thinks he's a booking genius, that he sprinkles on their (laughs) ideas. If the Saturday show is still that, but it's CM Punk in charge of CM Punk segments. If it's maybe FTR not being used like goofs, who knows? CM Punk, though, uh, the one thing to say about his run in AEW, it's a track record now. One year, great segments, great matches, real emotion, fans invested in things. Serious segments in the world of professional wrestling. That's exactly what I think wrestling should be right now. So... I'm optimistic for CM Punk because he's proven it for one year that no matter what damage Tony Khan does that arrested that program, his segments, he's not going to allow the shenanigans. It, it just, that's the problem is that if you have a program with shenanigans, except in one great segment, uh, I just, uh, I think you should have a program with uh, great segments and no shenanigans. And that's not going to happen with Tony Khan if he's getting a brand new two-hour program. If he if he wants to put a talent roster on that program with CM Punk in charge, how about then giving, or the top star, giving CM Punk the right to pick two or three people that he might 
think or believe in that company uh, that he could entrust with putting together a proper television format and letting it be independent of the other program, and then you've got a fair way to see, you know, which one is more successful. If it's just, if it's Wednesday night, here's the Wednesday night shit, and Saturday night's the same kind of, same looking shit as Wednesday night, just with a few different people, but it's still booked by Tony except for the CM Punk segment, which will be good, then <laughs> it needs to be its own program. If it's going to have different talent, it needs to have a different look and a different outlook and different presentation. Different and commentators. Different, and different announcers, yes. That's a big deal. Because well, and Sockface will do everything he can to tank anything that is opposed to the Buckaroos outlook on wrestling because the only reason that he's the only reason he owns a television now much less is on television is because of maddie and nikki his childhood friends i started pro wrestling gorilla yeah of course he did yeah but just because your breath smells like cheetahs ain't no sign you're tarzan uh, so you can't have an announcer that's going to try to or wouldn't even understand how if he was trying to do a good job he wouldn't understand how to do a wrestling program he only understands how to do VHS commentary in the basement. So uh, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out for that $50 million. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things play out and see how the meeting goes with CM Punk and the other people in AEW, but we'll stay on top of it. We'll let people know what happens between now and the drive through If anything big happens, we'll have some breaking news audio. Wait a minute, this is the drive through no, no, this is the experience. This is the experience. Well, goddamn you. You've just taken over my program. You can have it back. I'm out. All right. Well, in that case, I'm out too. And we'll be back. Fuck, probably tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs> fuck you. Bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, mom, I need to watch the show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Title tournament.
wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corny, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play spot the submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero. The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer. Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer. Don't come in, Mom. Don't come in. Are you touching yourself again? Oh, no. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elsa says I'm in the 